This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. You ready for Friday? It's Friday, folks. You know, time to get ready for the weekend. And also, of course, uh, time to debrief from the great debate, the GOP debate last night. You said it. Angels in heaven are singing because it, it was a civil debate. Many would say the most boring debate in the GOP uh, history, I guess at least of this election process, nobody fought, really. I mean, pretty boring. In fact, uh, Mark Halperin from Politico um, said probably Donald Trump is the luckiest leading candidate in the history of the GOP. Because today, in order to create civility, nobody fought him. Or yesterday, nobody fought against him, really. So he kind of just snuck right through. He walked right in. In fact, it became a ama- uh, you know became one of his statements in the debate. I think that what we've got here is a well. That's case not Donald. Classification. I'm we'll not give you permission. Concer- I am not concerned about. It. <laughs> that's not Donald. He was like so impressed how civil this debate is, and the reason I guess it was civil is because no one was attacking him. And Donald didn't bring up anything really disgusting or vile. He did stand behind his statement, though, that uh, that Islam hates America. He he kind of he he refreshed that. He didn't he didn't change it. He didn't alter it. And I mean, do you, do you mean all Islam? Do you mean just kind of extreme extremist Islam? But. He feels strongly it's it's all of Islam. Anyway, interesting debate. Let's uh, let's try. Let's see if we can get uh, Donald's comment on civility. No, it's just not working. He also uh, an interesting thing. Um, he he kind of dropped in there to last night that Ben Carson who, who uh, suspended his um, presidential um, uh, process, he, he said Ben's going to be basically supporting him and throwing his support today. And, and 9 Eastern time, supposedly that's going to be going down. So any time now, Ben Carson will now be apparently backing Donald Trump, which seems kind of crazy, right? Because... Ben Carson was put down a lot by Donald Trump. Like pathological, I think Donald called Ben Carson. Um, But apparently Ben's throwing his uh, endorsement behind Donald Trump today, which, you know, there's politics for you. And it was very interesting. I was with Dr. Ben Carson today who's endorsing me, by the way, tomorrow morning. We spoke for over an hour in education, and he has such a great handle on it. There are a lot of things, but I'm going to have Ben very much involved with education. 
Wow. Don's going to have Ben very much involved in education, except I, I thought education was going to be eliminated in the Donald Trump. Not if you fix it. Well, no, I think he was going to just send it back to the states. So maybe Ben's job would be shepherding the federal government Department of Education back to the state level. That'd be great. I'd love. Or it would continue the narrative Trump's trying to say is that someone's been asleep at the switch in the Department of Education. Yeah. And Ben Carson is asleep. Well, no, I don't think that's because his he, eyes are closed. No, but he's he's, he's brilliant. Just, he's so taking a nap. This is the guy you want. This is the guy you want to dismantle the education system and put it back to the state level would be a man with his intellect. He's a brain surgeon. So when he says, hey, dismantling the education department, it's not brain surgery. Boom, you got the guy because he's done brain surgery. You with me? It's easy. I should be running. There you go. (sighs) No way. It's crazy. He also was pretty much begging the, the GOP to get on board. We're taking people from the Democrat Party. We're taking people as independents, and they're all coming out, and the whole world is talking about it. It's very exciting. I think, frankly, the Republican establishment, or whatever you want to call it, should embrace what's happening. We're having millions of extra people join. We are going to beat the Democrats. We are going to beat Hillary or whoever it may be, and we're going to beat them soundly. Yeah. He's trying to rally the troops. See, this is... The kinder, gentler Donald. This is him unifying the party. And we'll see, because when Florida hits, Ohio, when all of those start firing and hitting, if Donald, if Donald's not winning, it's going to get ugly again. He's got to unify it. I don't know. His, I'll hear him at a campaign rally. Ted the Liar, Little Marco... And then he does like a TV interview and he goes, I have great respect for these people. Yeah. So it's – It's it's gamesmanship. Yeah. But it, it's – and honestly, you could almost see that that's just what he's doing. I read a political Politico article about uh, Chelsea Clinton and Ivanka Trump. I did not realize they are pretty good friends. Yeah. Like really good friends. Yeah. Like, I heard that a while back. Which is interesting because – can you imagine your father beating up – or your friend's father beating up your mother? Like that's – Well, as, as, as Marco Rubio says, when you have two New York elitists, yeah, their families are going to rub elbows every that's once right. in a while. <laughs> they went to the wedding, the Trump's latest wedding. His latest wedding. I like that. Well, you never know. Yeah. He could have another one. Never know. He still got some years left in him. He's um, – it's interesting though. I guess Ben Carson really had no other choice but to support him because he couldn't support Ted Cruz because Ted's the one that said that he wasn't – he was out of the race and kind of you know, seriously gutted him in Ohio – in Iowa. Remember? It would be like Christie trying to support Rubio. <clears throat> yeah. After he did the – what, the mutually assured destruction move. Mm-hmm. Take Rubio down, but takes me out of the race completely. So eh, well, let's do it. But it's interesting, don't you think, to see where these candidates are going? Uh, Christie and Carson with Trump, Fiorina 
and we'll see where Jeb goes because Jeb's out, da- you know, going on dates with all of them. Yes, he's on speed dating at the moment. He's speed dating to to pick a candidate. You'd think he would have known, you know, because mm. he was he was fighting against him. There's got to be one that he really is more. For me, to. for me, that would be difficult because you spend all that time in a way. Well, you're tearing down the other opponents to climb over them, yeah. and it doesn't work. Yeah. And then you have to step out, and then everybody wants your endorsement. And you're like, well, I don't necessarily like you, but of the candidates left, anyone but Trump is kind of where he's he seems to be uh, to yeah. be floating at the moment. Don't forget Kasich. He got he had a huge endorsement. Did you hear this? Huge, huge. Urban Meyer. Urban Meyer. Yeah, he's been Urban Meyer has been holding back on his endorsement. I coach Ohio State football, therefore my endorsement matters in that state. Oh, man. But see, that might be enough right there just to carry the state. Could be. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Crazy um, time. We t- we said basically Trump's just playing a lot of games theory here. But uh, joining us in just a few moments will be Dr. John Patty. He's going to talk to us about the games theory behind the SCOTUS nomination, Supreme Court of the United States nomination. Remember, Mitch McConnell pulled himself out, pulled the entire Senate out, saying we're not going to be voting on any nominations. We're not having a hearing. We're not going to talk Nothing. to any candidates at all. And he said it right first day, first thing you could say. It was within an hour of the announcement that Justin Scalia had died. Right. Which is, it's just irreverent. It's not, it wasn't, it's not proper protocol, but he was sending a message and we're going to be talking with a professor of politics from uh, Chicago uh, University, University of Chicago, and he's going to be talking to us about what was really going on. There's a lot of nuance, nuance, and a lot of people that they have to please. It is, it's, it's got to be really hard, I think, to be a member of the GOP All hierarchy because you're pleasing so many different. I read an article that tried to identify the factions of the so-called civil war that's going on. Yeah. And yeah, if he has to, and the the article identified six. So if there's six different mindsets, ideas, values that the the leader of the GOP right. Senate has to somehow try to appease, that's insane. So there's some there's there's some I guess there's gaming going on, and, and our guest uh, Dr. John Patty will walk us through the game. Why does why are we doing what they're doing? I mean, he could have McConnell just could have just been quiet and just totally. Slowed it down. Yeah. Well, what I expected is you have this, you have the hearings, and they just say no in the hearings. But when you come out publicly that way, it just looks like you're you can kind of hide. You do the obstructionist thing with yeah. doing on the down low instead of coming right out in public. And yeah, no, he, he we're not just, even going to cooperate. So by coming out, he was trying to appease somebody. We'll we'll get yeah. into that. Uh, But first, let's get to the headlines, Terry. What's going on around the rest of the world? Thanks, Matt. Senator Ted Cruz secured his first endorsement from a sitting senator Thursday from longtime friend, which I've read some reports might be a little questionable on the friend part, but Senator Mike Lee from from Utah. Hey, there's one. Yeah. Uh, The endorsement comes just hours ahead of Thursday night's GOP debate, the the days before Florida's crucial primary and delivers yet another blow to Rubio's already suffering campaign. Just last month, Lee declined to pick between Cruz and Rubio, campaigning with both candidates in South Carolina. Lee's decision to throw his support behind Cruz comes as Republicans scramble to unite behind a single candidate to defeat frontrunner Donald Trump. And Lee says he hopes his decision will influence more of his Republican colleagues to do the same. Read an article yesterday. Yeah. A lot of Republicans looking to hold their nose and do what's best for the party. And what is that? Follow Cruz. Interesting. 
Support Ted Cruz. Hold so, your nose. So there and should be a Ted. tsunami of support coming. Allegedly. That, that could carry him to a, the a, election. A lot of people are in deliberations at the moment. Yeah. Hillary Clinton already knows what she'll be doing if Donald Trump wins the presidency, and it doesn't involve moving to Canada. She oh. was asked on MSNBC if Trump wins, what would she do? Well, first of all, I do not think that will happen. And I have every confidence if I'm the nominee, it certainly won't happen. I would never leave our country, but I would certainly be spending a lot of time yelling at the TV set. So, there you go. <laughs> Can't you see her rocking her grandbaby yelling at the TV set? The latest Florida primary polling numbers have Trump ahead by as much as 19 points with a 43-24 lead over Marco Rubio. A Fox News poll has John Kasich leading Trump in Ohio 3429. Wow. So we'll see where those go by Tuesday when yeah. those two state primaries happen. Japan marked the fifth anniversary of the earthquake and tsunami that devastated the country and left more than 18,000 dead or missing. Japan's prime minister and the emperor attended a memorial in Tokyo to take part of the national moment of silence to mark the exact moment the magnitude 9.0 quake struck off the coast of Japan in 2011. The powerful quake struck sparked the world's worst nuclear disaster at the Fukushima power plant. Water overwhelmed the plant, taking cooling systems offline. Mm. As we, re- we remember, as we watch that on TV, yeah, just crazy time there. California State Senator approved a bill that will raise the legal purchasing age for cigarettes from 18 to 21. If Governor Jerry Brown signs the age increase, California will become the second state with a smoking age of 21 following Hawaii. The Sacramento Bee reports. Hmm. Raising the smoking age. Good. To help with... Uh, Maybe we ought to raise the voting age. We could do that, too. I don't know just, why. Just so we make better decisions in our elections. Uh, and this is a kind of a feel-good, if you want to take it that way. An Ohio woman expelled from high school just weeks before graduation after it was discovered she was married finally got her diploma on her 93rd birthday. Oh, great. According to the Akron Beacon Journal, Dorothy Louise Liggett secretly married her husband after he was drafted into the Army in 1942. Hmm. But when she accidentally let the uh, fact slip during gym class, North High School in Akron followed school policy and kicked her out of school. She lived the rest of her life regretting not graduating. Then Leggett's uh, 73-year-old daughter wrote a letter to the Akron Public School Superintendent David James uh, to have invested 13 years in in school to have been a good student and still not have a diploma was simply wrong, James tells the local newspapers. James surprised Leggett with a diploma for her 93rd birthday on Wednesday. You know what is great about that is now her mom will get off her back. That's right. When are you going back to school? When are you going back to school? Mom! Leave me alone. Don't you think her mom's just in heaven cheering that on? That's cool. That's really cool. Kind of an odd rule. You're married. We'll kick you out of school. You're married. Yeah. Well, we had that one guy that was 23 years old in high school. Yeah. So Ben's 40 in what are college, you do? acting like a 21 year old. Actually, acting like a 14 year old. Anyway, it's a struggle. Yeah. We. You're a German spy, by the way. Uh, Donald Trump totally disrespected, dissed Angela Angela Merkel. How do you say it? Angela Merkel. Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, we'll take care of it. Oh. You and your people? Yeah, my people. Um, I knew you were a spy. I knew it. We have our ways. <laughs> a German spy at BYU. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, Dr. John Patty will be joining us from the University of Chicago. He's a professor in political science. He's going to walk us through... All the gamesmanship that's going on around the new, uh, you know, the potential nomination for a Supreme Court justice, 
to replace Antonin Scalia's um, on the U.S. Supreme Court. Man, it's crazy. Complications, folks. Poli Sci 101. Buckle in, folks. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, you know, after Justice Scalia's death, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell was quick to voice his opinion on Obama's uh, pending announcement of a successor. McConnell, just minutes, really, hours after uh, Scalia's death, said the American people should have a voice in the selection of their next Supreme Court justice. Therefore, this vacancy should not be filled until we have a new president. There's been extensive attention on the Senate's refusal to meet the any potential nominees that Obama might put forward. So why is the Senate refusing to uh, to even have hearings on this? And why was Senator McConnell so quick to make the announcements? It seems politically like not a great strategy, but maybe there's more behind this strategy than we think. There's, there's some serious gaming going on. Joining us now from Chicago is Dr. John Patty, professor of political science at the University of Chicago. He's here to discuss his recent article, The Game Theory Behind Mitch McConnell's Supreme Court Strategy. Dr. John Patty, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you, Matt. Pleasure to be here. Great to have you. Um, w- talk about it, really. Like, it, Why on earth would, would Mitch McConnell, right out of the chute, hours after the death of Scalia, right. why why would he make such an announcement? Well, there's a lot of uh, reasonable explanations. Obviously, one could say that he just you know he was surprised like everybody was, and uh, and and had to come up with a reaction. Yeah, and maybe he would have uh, liked to have taken it back. <laughs> but, yeah, right. Um, I think uh, one reason that he, that they've stood their ground, I think, um, in addition to maybe saving face, is that. Um, McConnell, unlike Grassley and 23 other uh, GOP senators, is not up for re-election this year. Um, and I think McConnell correctly sees a potential win for the Democrats with any vote, regardless, regardless of whether it's up or down, on an Obama nominee for the Supreme Court. Um, it would allow Obama a chance to put somebody uh, who has a record on any particular issue that he thinks would help the Democrats in 2016 up for every senator to basically take a position, a clear position, yes or no, on. Hmm. And so McConnell basically wanted to cut him off at the pass and say, I'm not allowing this. Because McConnell doesn't have anything to fear for four more years. Right, he's good. What he has to fear for his party is that this is a gigantically imbalanced, uh, cycle for the Republicans because they've got all of the senators that uh, came in mm-hmm. in 2010 uh, in the huge midterm win uh, for the GOP. And so I think he's really basically trying to take the heat off uh, his colleagues, uh, if you will. Um, mm. and, and and we'll see in four years if the Kentucky voters remember that. I mean, yeah. I'm not sure if the Kentucky voters would be mad about it or not. No. But, um, but right it, now he's got a long time to wait. Wasn't, it, wasn't there a similar... Um, push and I don't know if I don't remember if it was Mitch McConnell, but when President Obama was uh, elected, somebody um, John Boehner or Mitch McConnell, somebody came out and just said, "We're going to obstruct. We're basically not going to pass his anything." 
Do you remember yeah, that? Mitch McConnell. Was it Mitch? Yeah, Mitch McConnell famously said that his goal was to make Obama a one-term president. So oh, man. That didn't work out. No, it didn't. <laughs> but, this has echoes um, of that same kind of thing. But what I loved about your article is you got into some of the nuance and the games theory going on because he really has to appease multiple groups, one of which you just mentioned. Exactly. You have all of these senators from bigger kind of, you know, larger states, maybe more moderate-leaning states, and they nobody wants right now, it seems like many of them do not want to appear too conservative. I think that's right. I mean, obviously, uh, in my own state, uh, Senator Kirk, um, he, he, within, I think, 24 hours, came out and actually said uh, that he thought the Senate should give a fair hearing to any nominee. Hmm. Of course, Kirk is facing a very competitive race. I mean, he's, he's a little bit out of step anyway, because I mean, Illinois is not a blue, blue, blue state, uh, but but the biggest city is yeah, <laughs> blue, right. blue, blue city. And um, I think that, in a sense, Kirk's strategy there uh, exemplifies why McConnell might, he, whether he thought about it beforehand or not, I think he might be buying into the game theory here a bit because he sees that Kirk can, uh, can appease a clearly more left-leaning uh, state you know, he's probably representing one of the more liberal states that has a, a GOP senator hmm. right now. And so McConnell can allow Kurt to kind of blame McConnell. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, sort of take one for the team. I think that the real issue is going to be not necessarily with um, the senators per se now. As you were saying, there's a lot of groups out there. And I think one of the, one of the things that McConnell's thinking down, and this is uh, – uh, not my point, but uh, but I've been reading it from several other people, and I really like it, is that right now with the un- unknown nature of the GOP presidential primary, right, McConnell's got to be thinking, oh, my gosh, I don't even know what issue is going to come to the forefront. I mean, right now immigration's a big one, right? But right. Um, And the court obviously is, is taking a big stance on that. Uh, they're going to have to rule on um, Obama's... Uh, uh, executive orders from uh, a year or two ago about the uh, the Dream Act and so forth, and so that's a case that's currently pending. Mm. Um, and so, uh, can you imagine right now with a four four court and this decision pending, if Obama nominates someone and they actually get a hearing on the floor of, of on the floor of the Senate, basically, they're going to be asked about immigration, and they're going to yeah. have to basically deal with you know the Trump and Cruz and Rubio rhetoric, whatever they happen to be saying. Yeah, that is... I just want to keep that out of the room. Totally. Well, and it's so this is interesting because it seems like, in a way, and and it would favor the Democrats, um, this is going to fuel uh, and maybe drive people to the voting booth in the general election, is is a pending Supreme Court nomination. Yeah, I think that we don't really have very many... Um, examples of such a high-profile judiciary uh, opening mm. during such a wide-open presidential race and a uh, pivotal uh, Senate race. Again, because the, the Senate's so closely controlled that it doesn't require a landslide in either direction to, to flip control of it. Right. Um, and so I think that my, my own personal opinion, we don't have really great research on this because we get so few opportunities to, to see it. Um, but I don't think that there, we'd see a huge turnout uh, change because of the Supreme Court. Okay. To be clear, most most people have a lot of other things going on in their lives. I mean, I think, think a lot about this. Right. You know, and probably well, do. It, but, it, but it could be really key in just a couple of states, right? And yeah. if, it's, if it's key in a couple of states, that turns electoral votes, electoral college votes, and it turns 
uh, Senate races. Yeah, right? it seems. So a, it, it seems like we'd always we always heard that if there was like a if there was a mar- a national marijuana initiative to legalize marijuana, <laughs> huge turnout. But if there's a Supreme <laughs> Court nomination, <laughs> bleh, whatever. Right. Exactly. It's crazy, right. John. <laughs> that is it nuts. Kind of crazy. I mean, what? I think one thing that that that, that um, rationalizes it a bit is the fact that the court. Um, is sort of unique in the sense that justices don't bring the cases up themselves, right? The cases right. percolate up to them. And so, you know, and traditionally for, for that reason and, and other reasons uh, that are more sort of sociological in nature, norms of, of deference and whatnot, just, potential justices don't come out and take positions on things, you know, so as opposed to a presidential nominee or a, a Senate uh, race or a House race where, the, where a member could say, when I get to Washington, I'm going to do X. The justices don't do that, right? They right. say, I'm going to go and I'm going to hear the cases, you know, fairly. And I think that's what they actually believe they're going to do. Um, and so, you know, again, it, it would be interesting to find somebody who thought that they could get on the Supreme Court by saying, you know, when I get there, I'm going to legalize marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That, that, that might be the best option. <laughs> well, what's weird, though, John, simultaneously, as Mitch is doing this, President Obama is also kind of posturing. It's it's interesting to see how many people are trying to jump out of the SCOTUS nomination, you know, train wreck. Uh, everybody, nobody wants to be like affiliated with this nomination now, or even be nominated, right? They they don't want it because is it just a sacrificial lamb, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, that's a I don't know. I think that um, one thing about jumping out of the way, um, Obama is the one person in the country who has. Uh, no interest in jumping out of it. I yeah, think no. Obama, uh, he has a real uh, incentive. I mean, if it, even if it's only partisan, but I think he wants to do his, his due diligence. Mm-hmm. Um, but most importantly, every day that he uh, can kind of keep the conversation going, again, it's only at the margins. This isn't like we're just talking about. This isn't the most important issue necessarily. But, um, but the heat is just going to gradually rise on Grassley and uh, McConnell. Um, and Grassley, uh, Chuck Grassley, the senator from Iowa, is the chair of the Judiciary Committee, and he, he's been back in McConnell, but he, too, is in cycle this time. He's up for re-election <laughs> in Iowa. Yeah. And, um, and so uh, last week uh, there were some rumors, and I don't know if, if they were true or not, but again, Obama doesn't have any reason to qu- uh, quash them, uh, that he was considering Jane Kelly, who is uh, currently now on the Eighth Circuit of uh, Eighth Circuit, Eighth Circuit's court, which is a court of appeals that represents Iowa and um, South Dakota, that area of the country. I don't know all the states off the top of my head. And um, Grassley got her nomination through in a record time, basically, 83 days, very hmm. short confirmation, unanimously, um, in 2013. She's an Obama appointee. Um, and so for now, when he got her through, the Democrats controlled the Senate, um, but the Republicans had more than enough uh, weight to filibuster it. And so Grassley actually publicly said in her uh, hearings before the committee that he was supporting her precisely because um, a judge for whom she had clerked earlier in her career spoke so warmly of her. And this judge, who I think it was Judge Hansen, he had helped Grassley in 1980 in his first election bid because he was a Republican chairman, county chairman back then. Um, and he owed, as he put it, he owed his entire election, his entire career as a senator to this guy, which I have no doubt that this was sincere. And right, myself. right. Um, but it's funny that he basically says, for electoral reasons, I'm, you know, to pay back an electoral <laughs> debt in a good, good, good American way, right? Yeah. I'm going to get her through. She's very qualified. And then 
now, you know, potentially be saying, well, we couldn't possibly have hearings on her. Yeah. She's from his state. So this is just a good example of, uh, of Obama's ability, in this case, to kind of target the pressure on, in this case, uh, a senior member of the GOP leadership. Holy uh, cow. And, and it's, yeah. it really is, for, for Obama, I mean, I guess, because you could choose, you could choose um, a very sincere, um, incredibly qualified, already pre-vetted exactly. moderate that there's <laughs> right. no way they shouldn't vote for. And, and that, too, I guess, would stir some of the rancor. That's crazy. Yeah, and I, I think the real, um, uh, the real advantage that he has, going back to our original uh, point about uh, McConnell saying that they weren't going to even consider it, is that Obama can bring up these, these moderates or conservatives or Democrats, you know, just pure liberals. Right. And, and in, in a geographically targeted way, right, and just uh, go and look for favorite sons and favorite daughters. And, uh, and so my, uh, my co-author on the, on the post that you were, you were talking about, um, Tom Clark and I, uh, Tom Clark's at Emory, we, uh, we actually compiled a list. And we made somebody write up a little fun article about here was the hit list of people that have been recently confirmed to the judiciary that Obama ought to go down. Yeah. <laughs> and, and state and by state, like, every state that he needs to exactly. shake the Senate race or whatever, he can. Exactly. That's, oh my heavens. But it's, and that's funny because yeah. he can just keep, you know, suggesting names for yeah. two more months, three more yeah. months, and, and then. He, until he sends them to the Senate, that's, a, that's his advantage is that he can think about it as long as he wants. <laughs> um, which is sort of the flip side of the, the advantage that the Senate also has. I mean, McConnell, uh, to be clear, you know, McConnell and Grassley, what they're saying here, some people have, on the Democratic side have said that they're, they're not fulfilling their duty or they're doing improper things. They're, they're playing the normal game. They're sure. well within their right to do this. Um, the Democrats would do it, too. Um, I don't think it's actually untoward. It's, it's, what's, it's the way the system's supposed to work. It's like the prosecutor versus the defense in our judicial <laughs> system. Both sides are supposed to take their best shot. Um, and so, you know, when I, I talk to people, you know, sort of in my classes and, you know, sort of on the street about this, and, and I, I feel bad because I think they do feel like um, there's, a, there's a disrespect of the system that's being played out right now. And I really think that actually, as opposed to some of our other uh, fights in the last, say, 16 years, um, right now the, the Senate's actually not being disrespectful, and neither is Obama. They're mm. just, uh, they're, they're honestly, this is a big, important decision. Um, and Obama has the right to make a, uh, a suggestion, and the Senate has the right to, to say no. And yeah. they don't have to say no affirmatively. They can just say, we're not going to take care of it. That's um, so true. Let's, let's a take note a I'd, I'd, oh, oh, go ahead, John. Uh, I was just going to say, a, a little note I'd throw in just really quickly is that um, it, it's important for everybody to remember that um, Obama will have at least, you know, assuming nothing really, really weird happens, like, and, and hopefully he finishes out his term. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, Obama, Obama will have at least 17 days to send a nominee to the next Senate, because the Senate is, is sworn in on January 3rd, and his successor won't be sworn in until January 20th. Oh, interesting. So he will actually have a chance to, you know, if the Democrats retake the Senate, for example, he'll have a, a chance to send to, uh, to, the, to the new Senate a, uh, a nominee. Holy cow. Ooh, that makes the Senate races. <laughs> that's a big deal. That Now all of a sudden, you're stirring the pot again, John. Let's do this. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. John Patty from the University of Chicago, a professor of political science. He's trying to just help us understand the chaotic politics 
going on and the games theory that's going on behind Mitch McConnell's Supreme Court strategy. We'll take a break, folks. We'll come back. We'll continue the discussion. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Friends to the Matt Townsend Show. Crazy times, not only in the presidential election, but uh, in in the in the game that's going on between the Senate, uh, Mitch McConnell, Senator Mitch McConnell, and um, President Obama. As we're, you know, with with the loss of Justice Scalia and his death, there needs to be a new nomination. Somebody needs to be put on the court. Somebody to break the tie, the 4-4 tie, and it's uh, it's been nothing but politics from, really, it seems like, hours after the death of Justice Scalia. So we've asked Dr. John Patty to join us. He is a professor of political science at the University of Chicago. He's here to discuss uh, an article that was in Vox magazine, uh, The Game Theory Behind Mitch McConnell's Supreme Court Strategy. And uh, he's walking us through it. We appreciate you, Dr. John Patty. Thanks again for being here. Thanks for having me. This is fun. This is way fun. What do, what do you think? Um, this isn't new. I mean, historically, Joe Biden, Schumer, Chuck Schumer, they've all made comments historically in similar circumstances about yeah. not having, you know, kind of in a lame duck session or, or a series, having a, a nomination go through. Does any of that play out on this, really? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, I think that um, this is pretty unique. Uh, it's only because of the you know confluence of so many uh, factors. The fact that the Senate's so closely controlled and has been going back and forth in partisan control over the last I don't know ten fifteen years. Uh, the fact that the presidential race is so truly more up in the air than you would think at this time of the year because we really I mean I don't know who's going to be the right. nominee for the Republicans. <laughs> uh, nobody does. I think. Um, and also the fact that the court is, of course, very closely divided on some key issues um, and some big ones, uh, some really big issues. Because uh, one of the things that Obama, I think, is looking at, as, as are the Republicans, uh, that is different than uh, eras in the past, that the court is really weighing in right now on a lot of questions of executive authority. Right. Um, and obviously Obama has brought that issue up. Um, and his, his predecessor, George W. Bush, did as well. Uh, he and Cheney both also had a very articulated and expansive theory of what the president could do on his own. Um, and the court is, has been increasingly involved in this issue. And that's something that's pretty unusual. Uh, the court traditionally tries to, or has tried to stay out of these, uh, in effect, big, big questions, squabbles between the president and Congress over which one is more powerful. Uh, mostly because the court, of course, doesn't have an army, doesn't have a budget, you know, mm-hmm. just sort of like, hey, we we can help you break ties. Um, uh, but, you know, even going back to Bush v. Gore, actually, you know, the court has increasingly been, been pulled into this. And so uh, with Obama in, in, in particular right now, you're going to have, so if we think about the, the questions of torture, for example, that was a big issue that the right. court has basically been trying to sort of stay out of with regard to Bush era. 
policies and now Obama policies. Uh, the question of, uh, you remember that there was a, a high-profile case a year ago about um, Obama's uh, recess appointment. That was, right. was a squabble of three or four years ago. And the court, of course, uh, took, uh, took the side against the president on that and said that limited those uh, appointments a bit. Um, but most importantly, uh, we're going to see on immigration, I think, uh, a really big decision vis a vis the president's power to kind of implement uh, very complicated policies. And so the court's been trying to avoid that on uh, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, because they had a high profile case where they basically were confronted with the question of whether the president could waive requirements, uh, sort of delay an implementation right. of a law. They sided with Obama on that, and they sort of have to. That's a complicated issue, but they sort of had to. But on the immigration issue, this is going to be a much bigger one, because effectively what happens is if the court sides with Obama, and I shouldn't put it that way, but sides with the executive branch, sides with the administration over the power to kind of expand um, uh, certain immigration programs that, that delay uh, deportation, um, then lots of people are going to be given these uh, these delays, hmm. uh, these deferred uh, deportations. And if that happens, those people will stay in the United States with, with probability near one. They will stay in the United States legally for the rest of their uh, lives. I mean, they won't actually be legalized. It's not amnesty. Right. Uh, but this is an, a, a longstanding program uh, that basically allows the government to give compassionate release, if you will. And so Obama sort of expanded that. And the question is whether he has expanded it beyond his authority or not. The court's going to weigh in on that. They took that case before Scalia passed away, and so so it would be weighed on, it weighed in on before the election. Potentially, um, the real question that people have, you know, I'm not as much of a court expert as as uh, as, as I am uh, sort of Congress and the president, but um, but my friends who are more court experts are, are like, well, well, there's a couple of different ways they could go. They could actually just ask for a rehearing, um, and so they could. You know, they could actually wait. The court doesn't have to make a decision when it says it's going to. Yeah. Um, well, especially so when if it, the, would they wait if it's if it's if it's going to be four four? I mean, if it's going to be close, they would they wait? I mean, it seems like they might. That might make sense. Yeah. They. Um, I think if if I've got my history right, I mean, I think that this was something that we now know was sort of talked about with regard to Brown v. Board of Education. That was not a close decision. It was unanimous in the end, but they wanted to have it be unanimous because they understood how right. how big it was going to be. Um, and so here again, this one's probably not on the scale of Brown v. Board, but it's it, it, it's pretty big. Yeah, especially and, uh, right now, right, and in this election, even. Yeah. 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 And so I could see uh, for a lot of reasons, you know, both both conservative and liberal justices wanting to to get this one right, so to speak. And, and by by that, I mean uh, really make it make it clear to people that they're trying to weigh the issues not in a partisan way. And I think hmm. that, that they are. I mean, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a generally an optimist, and I think that the justices on both sides of the aisle, so to speak, try to do a good job. Um, the, the real complication here, by the way, is with a 4-4 decision, um, in this case, it would actually it would keep the program shut down for now, but it would not kill the program. Huh. Uh, the, and so uh, it's very complicated, but I think that that's actually kind of the worst outcome to actually render a tie on right. this particular issue because because this is an issue that's going to keep coming up. But would be a win. That kind of, that would be a win for Obama's administration. No, no. It's, it's actually, sorry, it's, it's a little complicated. It actually, what's at stake right now is whether Obama can implement the program at all. Oh, at all. Program. Okay. Oh, yeah. So it wouldn't be, yeah. Interesting. So it, but it wouldn't kill it. Yeah, exactly. right. It just sort of 
right now it's on hold. There's an injunction against him. Mm-hmm. So he has the paperwork. You know, you can go on his website and, and you know, go to whitehouse.gov and find out what the program will do. But when the lawsuit first occurred, the first judge who encountered it at the district court level uh, told the executive branch, you need to wait. Mm-hmm. You can't start doing it while we hear the case. Uh, do you think, John, that um, how the election, let's say the general election, let's just say it happens to be a yeah. Trump and a Clinton head to head. If 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 Clinton, if she starts pulling ahead, starts dominating, would that impact the president's nomination process or and or would it expedite like, let's say the president puts a more moderate person forward would that make would that you know influence the Senate to start moving more quickly to nominate a moderate instead of waiting till a Clinton gets in who would probably go with a more liberal or that's a great question um, I think if Clinton uh, if Clinton were leading uh, and and uh, the Senate uh, if, and I were talking to Obama or McConnell, I would actually say right now the real question for both of you whether you want to try to meet and have a coffee and come up with a compromise is uh, is what's happening with the Senate races, hmm. right? Uh, I think McConnell, he can't control the presidential race. I think Clinton, if she were, if she, if Clinton were to become the president in 2017, I think it would look a lot like the dynamic we'd have right now with Obama. She might be a little more liberal. Uh, she would have a little bit more of a bargaining advantage depending on where the Senate stood. Um, but, uh, but I think the really interesting case is what happens if Trump is like winning? <laughs> <laughs> well, then his sister automatically becomes the nominee. <laughs> Duh. Come on, John. I don't even have a Ph.D. in politics. Exactly. Um, I, I think that uh, for Obama, if uh, if the Democrats were if they have great momentum, say, across the board in uh, August or September uh, and I were McConnell, um, I might go and bargain and say, I'd, you know, give give um, give Obama a chance to get a, another piece of legacy by naming hmm. uh, third Supreme Court justice. But. You know, I'm not entirely sure the stakes would be that high by that point. Yeah. Um, uh, because because I think Clinton or Sanders would, would basically appoint the same type of person that Obama would. Um, on that point, I think it's important for for the listeners and just hopefully all, all the voters to realize. I don't think that the the type of nominee we'll get will vary very much depending on who wins the election hmm. because the Senate, you know, is going to look largely the same. Oh, sure, that's they have true. To get to the Senate. Right. And so uh, whether it be Trump or Rubio or Cruz or Clinton or Sanders or I don't know, Carrot Top, whoever <laughs> the president is, they're going to have to deal with probably the same kind of filibuster threat. Is um, Carrot Top so running? Trump, <laughs> I, I didn't know. He, was, the, uh, he must be the independent I, I think, party. Yeah, I think Trump is uh, vetting him for VP. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> don't you dare say that. It's so true. <laughs> hey, um, I've got we've got about one more minute, but I got to ask you this. You know, when you, when you lose an Antonin Scalia, you lose uh, supposedly one of the smartest jurists around and the most conservative kind of anchor. Do you, do you ever – how do you get such an extreme conservative or moderate or liberal ever on the court again? Do you sense that will happen again? So I think that that's a great question, and it's good to keep in mind that you know, when Scalia over his career became more conservative. Okay. He was on the court for – what, 30, 30-ish years. Yeah. Right? He was appointed by Reagan. Um, and so that's something that's really changed a lot over the last 40 or 50 years. And it's, it's the reason that the stakes are so high is that people now stay on the Supreme Court basically for their entire life. Right. Uh, for a long, long time, over, over 150 years, the Supreme Court was considered like a, it was a job. And people did it, and then they resigned after 
five, ten years, uh, typically not all of them, obviously, a few stayed around for 30 or 40 years. Um, and so I think that uh, any, any president, regardless of his or her party, is going to have a lot of unknowns about where his or her nominees are going to wind up being seen as being hmm. at the end of their tenure. Right. Man, okay. We're going to have to have you back, John, because you're making this a lot easier to understand. The rest well, of us just think it's a train wreck, but you, you seem to understand that there's an actual game being played here. Uh, Dr. John Patty, we appreciate you. We will for sure have you back if you're willing, and uh, I want to pick your oh, brain definitely. on so many other things and, um, and just keep learning. Keep up your great work there, too, at the University of Chicago. All right. Thank you so much for having me. You bet, John. Thank you. And keep writing, for heaven's sakes. Folks, there's a lot going on behind the system, and it's interesting, too, to have, uh, to have John on and, and, and find out kind of the gamesmanship going on, but then also to see that there's still hope, folks. There's still hope in the union. This is, this is much more balanced and in control than it may seem, and this obstructionistic view may also just be politics as usual, maybe in the extreme, but um, great insight. We'll take a break. Come back, wrap up this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Folks, trying to help you uh, live longer, healthier, happier lives, more informed as well. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, whether you're into politics or not, this is your democracy, right? This is your this is your baby. And uh, it might be better to be informed. Again, like I didn't know. I didn't know Donald Trump was vetting Carrot Top as the vice president. I didn't know that. <laughs> but hello, a professor of poli sci from the University of Chicago says it's true. Hey, uh, by the way, this is politics may be gone awry. Listen to this. Austin and San Antonio, Texas, uh, they're at war, folks. Austin Mayor Steve Adler made it official. We are at war, a taco war. The city of Austin is currently at war with San Antonio over the subject that I know we all hold dear to our hearts. That, of course, is breakfast tacos. As your commander-in-chief for the Breakfast Taco War, it is my solemn duty to inform you that after you have selflessly given of yourselves, I will be drafting you into the great Breakfast Taco War of 2016. So, you know, some are fighting for immigration rights, some are fighting for health care, and some politicians are fighting for tacos. The uh, the whole beef uh, started when a writer for San Antonio Express News penned a scathing article online called 10 Reasons to Hate Austin Beyond Its Breakfast Taco Arrogance. The writer had taken issue with another article published by Eater Austin that positioned the Texas capital as the cradle breakfast taco of, of breakfast taco civilization. And it started a war between the two. And now somehow they're going to have to have a taco war. And I'm just going to suggest... Thank you. As an American, as a past visitor to Austin, who consumed not a taco, a breakfast taco, but a breakfast, I will, I will be willing to come down to Austin or San Antonio and help you solve this incredible debate. I'll consume tacos 
breakfast foods from both cities. For the good of America. For the good of America. And I'll, I'll take weeks if it takes that. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll eat whatever to help you solve this. That's how American I am. Thank you. I'm here for you. Now feed me. And if we could do it soon, that'd be great because I'm starving. That's the first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. We will take a break. Stick with us, folks. Helping you live longer and love stronger and solve the taco war in Texas. Right here on the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hour number two of the show. This is the place where we give you the, the solutions you need to have a healthier, happier life. Today, by the way, if you are if you're one who daydreams, Ben, Ben, listen up. Yes, ben, yes. If uh, Ben, oh, listen yeah. up again. Focus, Ben. If you're a daydreamer, today's the day. You're gonna want you will want to listen to Dr. Josh Davis because he's going to talk about the benefits of zoning out. Ben. Oh yeah, ben, what? what he's going to talk about the benefits of daydreaming. And zoning out. Ben? Okay. Yeah, Man. yeah. <sighs> Terry, will you take Ben out of the studio while we do this interview? I can do that. Because, honestly, the last thing I need is Ben to believe that daydreaming is good for him. I usually daydream when I drive. I do, too. Yeah, so. I, th- I think that's the most, the best place to daydream. I sleep a lot when I drive. I do find it odd when I get to my destination. I'm like, how did I get here? Don't you hate that? Hmm. And you wake up and you've got that, like, just a little drool on your chin. And you're like, what the? Or, or times where you you end up on an exit ramp and you're like, uh. Mom? Uh, where am I? Mom, are you here? What road is this? Oh, that is so sad. So sad, but so true. Speaking of daydreams, um, apparently Ben Carson has uh, decided to back Donald, Sir Donald Trump. Are we... Are we sure that he's not just sleepwalking when we see him on he's TV? He's not asleep. He's I, a brilliant. I'm not convinced of this. Man. He, maybe he's catching up because he probably had years. Is he taking micro naps? No. He's no. he's pensive. He's thoughtful. Well, when you listen to him speak, there's a pause. And there's a pause. Well, yeah. Combined with, the, I mean, his eyes are no, sort of half open. You're no. like, is he taking micro naps as we're talking he's here? He's thoughtful. So he kind of maybe squints to get deeper into mm. the recesses of his brain. Okay. Haven't you done that? Yeah, apparently not. Yeah. Um, so, so, uh, <laughs> so he's squinting to get into the recesses of mm-hmm. his brain. Think about it. Like when you think, sometimes when you think you'll look up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I just did there. I was like the right. looking off. I, I usually do it more for dramatic effect, yeah. but yeah. I know somebody personally that has been in surgery with him mm-hmm. and has and has assisted him in surgery. And he they say he is. Did you reach over and say, hey, wait, wake up, wake no, up? No, they said he's brilliant and incredible. He's an incredible surgeon. So he's now nominating or he's now placing his support behind Sir Donald Trump. 
And uh, tr- Trump likes the guy. And it was very interesting. I was with Dr. Ben Carson today, who's endorsing me, by the way, tomorrow morning. We spoke for over an hour in education, and he has such a great handle on it. There are a lot of things, but I'm going to have Ben very much involved with education. And Ben likes Donald. Some people said, well, why, why would you uh, get behind a man like Donald Trump? I'll tell you why. Uh, first of all, I've come to, to know uh, Donald Trump over the last few years. He is actually a very intelligent man who cares deeply about America. There are two different Donald Trumps. There's the one you see on the stage, and there's the one who's very uh, cerebral, sits there and considers things very carefully. You can have a very good conversation with him. Um, And that's the Donald Trump that you're going to start seeing more and more of right now. Hmm. Hmm. It's like a whole new Donald. I guess that begs the question of uh, why are we not seeing this other Donald? Well, because that won't get you elected. See, uh, a la Ben Carson. Very cerebral, very thoughtful, and out of the race. Donald, the exact opposite, seemingly, and in the race. Will he switch if he gets the nomination? Switch back? Will he go to this other Donald that, that Mr. Carson just said we have not seen yet where he's intellectual or he cerebral? He will when he's when Hillary is just a heap of smoldering ashes. Then the real Don will come out. Huh. And it's just nothing but steaks <laughs> and wine. <laughs> I think the steaks and wine with the water, I think that's Donald. I don't know if there's two Donalds. Isn't it interesting, though? Ben um, Ben Carson, the whole time when he was, yeah, he's a little slower, as, but you can tell he's thinking. He's, yep. he's very th- thoughtful about it. Um, but I, the whole time that he was talking, he says, so people ask me why I support Donald Trump. I was thinking of him, uh, like, telling the story about how he knifed somebody as a boy. <laughs> And broke the blade on, on the belt buckle. On or the belt something. buckle. Yeah. I was thinking of that. Like that's why they get along. Be- because they take they're they're men of action. Men of action. They take things into their own hands. They yeah. don't wait for others to make decisions. Right. Hmm. But it, it it is interesting to think that <laughs> you're you know Chris. If I, you're on a betting, I'm a betting man. But I don't bet. But if I were mm. to actually throw down money. That's interesting. But I use you the phrase You are, but a lot. you aren't. Gotcha. Go ahead. Chris Christie will be the head of the Justice Department. Period. Okay. He'll be the top cop for Donald Trump. Ben Carson apparently will be over the Education Department while they're closing it down and moving it to the states. He'll then be. He will close out the, uh, the offices is what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. And anybody else that Senator Sessions, who's backing the Don, they'll give him a job. Donald will give him a job. But right now, folks, if you're looking for a future in politics and you're a senior level politician, a sitting senator, any member of the establishment, now would be the time to throw your weight behind Donald and it will guarantee you a chair at the cabinet table. It could very well happen. Because I'm going to bet you that's what he's negotiating with him. Look, Ben, I need your vote. I need your peeps. Because right now, if I can get your peeps, I'm in. Give I'm, me your peeps. I'm set to endorse him next week to secure my spot. 
Oh, great. It's kind of like a timeshare thing, I think. Yeah, no, that, that will be that will really pull a lot of weight in the white male 40-year-olds playing 21-year-old LDS German-speaking contingent. It's a very undervalued demographic. <laughs> and specific. It's a very specific There's a, demographic. Uh, on Slate, on Slate.com, yeah. there is a Donald Trump C-list cabinet generator. That oh, you can wow. go in. They take all these people who are on the Celebrity app- Apprentice contestants, <laughs> oh, no. and then you can appoint them to what cabinet job you think they would best uh, best fill. Okay. And then below, they keep a running tally of who's put who where how many times. Yeah. So like, like Dennis uh, Rodman. Arsenio Hall. Okay, sure. Right? He'd be great. Housing and urban development. People will put him there 78 times. Brett oh. Michaels. He's yeah. a, a rock star. He uh, Veterans Affairs. Cheryl Teagues, the uh, yeah, and Cindy Lauper, both of them have both been appointed to the Secretary of Interior. David Cassidy, yeah, from the oh, Partridge family, yeah. transportation. <laughs> Debbie Gibson, she's the former teen pop star. Yeah, uh, Secretary of Energy. Dennis Rodman, Secretary of State. Obviously, he's been to North Korea. No, no. So no, Dennis no. Rodman could work as Secretary of State. <laughs> Gary Busey is vice president. Oh, my heavens. Gene Simmons from KISS is secretary yeah. of treasury. Yeah, this is good. George Takai from Star Trek, transportation. <laughs> Geraldo Rivera from uh, make him attorney general. I think that would work well. Yeah. So who's got to be the spokesperson? You need a spokesperson. I don't. That's not part of the cabinet. Who was that, that really feisty female? Amorosa? Amorosa. She'll be the, this, his secretary, his... Uh, Oh, they have her chief of staff. Chief of staff, yeah. They have uh, Meatloaf, the Secretary of Agriculture. (laughs) (laughs) Lou Ferrigno, the Secretary of Defense. He's the Incredible Hulk. Can I just say, this sounds funny. Yeah. But not that far-fetched. But America, we need to pray. We need to... to This could be your cabinet. Yeah, I found this the other day. Well, yeah, and Chris Christie's really... He's going to be over the Justice Department. Let's get real. You think so? Oh, yeah. And you know what? Honestly, he'll be fantastic. He really would be. That's kind of fit I, for him. I like it. I he used like, to take on the mafia. I like Geraldo Rivera for attorney general. I think that's Geraldo, a good move. No, no. Geraldo will be his spokesperson. Geraldo will be the communication secretary. Geraldo would be great there. You know, <laughs> live from what's his, what, who's, who's, was it John Gotti's tomb? Yeah. Oh, no, it was no. Uh, Al Capone. Al Capone's tomb. You open the door, nothing there. Oh. <laughs> Oh, that was great. Yeah. Well, that, that's, a, that's an incredible cabinet. I mean, honestly, you think about it, who would be in Hillary Clinton's cabinet? No name people. No. People you don't even know. Do you think Meatloaf would be in? Agriculture? No. Absolutely not. Lou Ferrigno? He would make a good Secretary He'd of Defense. He'd make a great Secretary of Defense. Who's going to mess with just the Hulk? Get all painted up green and go out there? It'd be great. <laughs> we are in so much trouble, America. It's crazy. But can you imagine the cut the price of a stake if a Trump stake if he's made president? Though I mean, it's filet mignon. That's like he's killed the cow. He said that in the interview. It's expensive. Yeah, he made all of the pita people mad. Yeah. There's going to be an embargo on all other stakes. Mm-hmm. You must a mandate from the king. Trump stakes. And then there'll just be certain grades of steak. You know, fillet at the top. Greatest, greater, greatest ever. The greatest. I promise the greatest. I like how he guarantees things like that. 
It's a good I promise you. Guaranteed. It works. Let's get to the headlines, Terry. Anything else going on around the rest of the world we need to pay attention to? There are. Last night's debate was different from past events, and the, candid- the candidates acted civil. They toned down the insults. Risque comments were not to be found. After the debate, Ted Cruz stayed consistent with his message that a Donald Trump Republican nomination would be bad news for the country. But what we've seen is when they learn more about Donald's records, they discover that he's been doing everything they're angry about, that he is Washington, Donald is the system. What we are seeing happen is we're seeing Republicans uniting behind our campaign, those who don't want to see Donald as the nominee, because if we nominate Donald, Hillary wins. A group of Republican donors and strategists have been working to persuade former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice to make an independent bid for president, according to a memo outlining the plan to politi- that Politico was able to wow. obtain. The group has grown increasingly dissatisfied with Donald Trump, the Republican leader who has roiled the party's establishment as he has surged ahead in the polls. The memo reads, the reality of the matter is that we will have President Trump or President Clinton if we don't have President Rice, says the memo. We have been in touch with Dr. Rice through her chief of staff read the plan, which is stamped confidential. She is a re- she's reluctant at this stage. We are asking for anyone wanting to assist to encourage her to run. She'd be an incredible vice president. I mean, she'd be an incredible president, no doubt, but if you know, Donald would be smart to cuz then all of a sudden he'd have foreign policy experience. The first female vi- vice president, African American, brilliant piano player, loves the NFL. What more do you need? There you go. The perfect Vice president. And if that doesn't work out, she could become the commissioner of the NFL. Or celebrity apprentice. Who knows? A memo received by a top official in Michigan Governor Rick Snyder's administration warned that switching Flint's water supply could lead to some big potential disasters down the road. The March 2014 document was released Thursday along with nearly 4,000 other pages of agendas and emails. The memo called the expedited rush to activate the Flint's water treatment plant. That was their year-long plan to cut off the city from its Lake Huron water source, less than ideal. So the claims that they didn't know what was going on are not holding up to water, yeah. if you could yeah. look at it that it's way. not holding the water. Russian President Vladimir Putin's former aide, who was found dead in a Washington, D.C. hotel last year, died of blunt force trauma to the head, officials said on Thursday. Uh, the aide also suffered injuries to his neck, torso, arms, and legs. Washington chief medical examiner reports the medical examiner had not concluded whether the injuries were were the result of a crime or an accident. The 59-year-old former Russian press minister and ex-head of Gazprom Media Holding Group, Hmm. which set up uh, Russia TV RT, it's on most cable systems. Yeah. If you want to, it's based out of D.C., but it it basically delivers news as if it was coming from Moscow. He was found at the city's DuPont Hotel in November, DuPont Circle Hotel in November. D.C. police are still investigating the case. Well, I'm sure he slipped. So they're saying it was an accident, but they're That's saying blunt crazy. force trauma. And like, did did something happen? Did Moscow? Did he have any radiation poisoning in him? No, they're just saying he got beat up, or slipped, or, or fell, slipped, or, or fell, or whatever. But it was he had neck, torso, arms, and leg injuries. D- Donald would need to watch out for that because he's he likes he he respects Putin. You know, he sees him as a strong leader, but a lot of people around Putin end up dying. They do. So you've got to be careful with that. Yeah. Americans are so leery about the possibility of a Donald Trump picking the late uh, the Supreme Court replacement for Antoine Scalia that they just as well put the decision in the hands of Taylor Swift. 
Wow. This according to a new public polling policy survey out Thursday about who Americans would want to make the Supreme Court appointment reveals that Americans find Donald Trump equally as qualified as the pop star to make the pick, with both getting 40% of the vote. Actor Tom Hanks and quarterback Peyton Manning... Mm. Uh, the Republican, what does it say that? So uh, against Tom Hanks or Peyton Manning, Donald Trump loses. So Americans trust Tom Hanks or Peyton Manning to make the Supreme Court pick more than Donald Trump. Yeah. They, uh, what, 47 to 35 Hanks over Trump and then 45 to 35 Manning over Trump. One star Trump does not manage to beat is Mickey Mouse. Oh, Trump beats Mickey Mouse 43 to 39%. So the cartoon yeah. character Trump can beat. America doesn't trust, but Peyton Manning or Tom Hanks, they'd make a good well, decision. Well, you've probably or, given Donald a great idea. Put together a committee, Peyton. It's uh, a new TV show. Tom Hanks. Yeah. This would be great. Celebrity appointment. Yeah. <laughs> and then Judge, Judge Judy just sneaks in to the Supreme Court. Bada boom, bada bing. Good stuff. <sighs> Are you a daydreamer? Are you one that just, you know, your mind gets away from you and you can spend, I don't know, like Ben here, hours, hours during three hours in particular, three hours during a live radio show, just zoning out. Well, apparently, according to our next guest, uh, zoning out actually brings uh, some benefits to you and your future. Interesting stuff, folks. Stick with us. We're going to be talking about daydreaming up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show. everybody to the matt townsend show a little monkeys for you daydream believer aka ben wasden better believe it (laughs) do you have favorite daydreams you know as a kid it may have been you know you pirate your pirating adventures on the high seas you know, or hitting that home run out of the park today you might just daydream about taking a family vacation or maybe just a nap Usually daydreaming is discouraged, but our guest today, Dr. Josh Davis, argues that daydreaming has its benefits. He is the author of Two Awesome Hours and a Psychology Today article uh, titled How Zoning Out Benefits Your Present and Your Future. He joins us now live from New York City. Dr. Davis, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Great to have you here. Uh, Daydreaming. Is is beneficial. I mean, it used to be you were just you know the kid with ADD that couldn't focus, or you were you know zoning out, maybe causing accidents. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and nobody ever encouraged uh, kids to to stare out the window more, you know. And uh, it's always always about how they need to sit still and focus. Right. Uh, well, I mean, it turns out that daydreaming is probably there for a reason, you know. And you know what? When you look at this, is kind of a rule across different things uh, psychologically that we can do. If it's something that human beings can do, there's probably a time and a place where it's adaptive to do it. Hmm. And in this case, it turns out there's a lot more to daydreaming uh, on the positive side than we may have ever realized. Uh, you know, there are, I would say there's four, different, there's four different types of benefits that have been seen in research that I'm aware of, and there may be others, but at least these four that suggests that it's not only something that can be beneficial, but that we're really kind of 
making our lives a lot harder, uh, making our work, our cognitive work, a lot harder if we don't give ourselves the time to daydream. Hmm. And um, that, that's interesting. Yeah, we may have – it's almost like we have a moral view of what it is, right? Like it's a waste. Like it's I, – I can. I, it's like it's naughty. Like don't do right. that. Focus. And yet, uh, like you're saying, it may be a disservice – because humans apparently just do it naturally. So what what are some of the benefits that we need to be – that we could derive from daydreaming? Well, so one of them is um, there's – one thing to understand is that uh, we have different networks in the brain that are active at different times. And one of those distinctions is that uh, in the front part of the brain, um, the part of the brain that's most different in human beings, uh, that's most important for the kinds of things that we think of as human functioning, self-control, uh, focused attention, being able to make deliberate conscious decisions, all that, that kind of stuff. Um, so in that part of the brain towards the front, we have one network that's more lateral, meaning towards the outside, the sides of the head, that is called the executive network that is important for staying focused on your goals um, and really driving towards a specific Specific end, among other things, and then we have another network that's on the medial part of the brain, meaning towards the center, the midline, in between the two hemispheres, that is very important for social processing, understanding ourselves and other people and how we relate. And the thing is, those two networks are anti-correlated in most research. That is, when you see one active, you see the other less active. Hmm. So the more that one's active, the less the other is active. So it's one or the other usually. One of the few times when those are both active at the same time is when we're daydreaming, when we're just kind of drifting, we're not paying attention to anything particular, we're not focused hard on anything else, we're just our minds wandering. We see that those two, those two networks are, are active at the same time and can start to integrate. And so it's one of those rare times when we can be finding ways that our goals can maybe be linked up with our our ideas about ourselves and our social lives. Huh. And that's a, a critical thing for actually succeeding uh, in a congruent way with what you're trying to accomplish. So that's one. It's like, it's like operationalizing our vision. I think it goes a long way towards that, yeah. That if you've got an idea about you know, who you want to be, a vision for yourself, uh, you know, that that can then become integrated with what you're trying to accomplish. But is I guess so. Maybe explain to us daydreaming before we get to these other ones. Is it is it just when we're sitting there visioning? Is or is it really when like if I'm sitting there, um, I don't know, thinking in my head about being a pirate and taking over a pirate ship? Then it's all fantasy. Is that a different quality of a daydream than me envisioning I could be president of the United States? Right. Well, so from a research perspective, uh, the, the, the definition has been essentially that you are thinking about something besides the task at hand. Mm. And so that could be uh, either of those as well as many other things. It could also be some kind of sort of anxious rumination or it can be thinking about something positive that's going to happen. And there's some interesting research emerging now that there, there may be differences between the two in terms of uh, how beneficial they can be. But uh, but essentially, it's just the distinction is that you're not paying it. You're not thinking about the task at hand. But and so, what, yeah, you're right? o- yeah, you're off yeah. task. Off task, exactly. Now, being off task, though, there's a critical distinction, though, which is that we might think, okay, well, you know, I'm trying to work on, let's say, a paper that I'm writing. If I'm a college student, or I'm trying to work on a report, I 
you know, an, an analysis I have to do, let's say, if I'm working in a bank or something like that, that, uh, you know, you have your task that you're, that you're working on, and sometimes when we're off task, what we do is we try to do something that feels refreshing or feels like we're making good use of our time, like checking email or reading the news or shopping online or, you know, something, something else that feels a little bit lighter. But when we're doing that, we're actually taking in new information, so we're not daydreaming. Our minds aren't wandering. We're off task, but our minds aren't wandering. Mm. We're processing new information. So the key is that there's two criteria. You need to be off task, but not tracking new information, so that the mind is actually free to wander wherever it goes. And those, when you've got those two things happening, then you're daydreaming. Okay. And, and yet, yeah, you're still, you're still experiencing work. You're still, I guess, taking in data, but your brain is also kind of on a vacation. <laughs> That's right. And the technical, technical term for it in psychology research would be that you're not taxing your working memory. So working memory is, is when we're trying to hold things in mind, mm. when we're trying to keep track of information and hold it consciously in mind. So if you're just... If you're just looking out the window, for example, one of the best ways to daydream that there is, because you're just noticing things. You don't have to hold anything in mind. And it does tend to help people get off track, because uh, there's interesting visual things happening, looking at other people, for example. This is interesting, because uh, in, uh, I teach a lot of communication theory and dialogue theory, and sometimes you need to be really good at suspending um, like what's going on in the moment and just kind of let it be and play out. And I wonder if that isn't a little bit of this too, where, I mean, I guess your working memory is still happening, but I'm able to kind of suspend my judgment of it. That's interesting. I hadn't uh, heard that connection before. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, You know, that there's, there's a lot, essentially what's happening is that there's a lot going on in the background. There's a lot of non-conscious processing, um, when we're, in fact, I, I think, you know, some estimates, and these have to just be complete rough estimates. There'd be no way to know a percentage. But, you know, I think if you look at Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, I believe, you know, he he makes an estimate about, you know, some, you know, vast majority, I, don't, I forget the percentage, uh, of our thinking is really driven by the, the non-conscious processing. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, the, you know, I think I think just about everybody would agree who studies this kind of studies these kind of phenomena, that well more than half of of our thinking is non-conscious, right? So there's a lot going on in the background non-consciously. And it tends to be of the form of pattern recognition. So, you know, you come across a problem you've you've seen before, you don't exactly know how to solve it, but it's similar to something you've seen before. And so those are weak signals in the background, but they can come together when you give them a chance. And if you're consciously really focused, if you keep on focused on the same problem, and you keep trying to take in new information, you don't give that a chance to kind of simmer and come to the surface, hmm. those connections to occur. So I think any kind of work where there needs to be some amount of creativity, if you, if you do give a chance for some mind wandering, when your mind starts to wander, if you let it happen, then you're likely to actually be able to take advantage of that non-conscious processing. Yeah, and I guess and unleash some more creativity. And I guess, too, because it would also take you to different parts of your mind, I'm assuming, and you know, maybe bring different ideas, different angles to back to the issue at hand when you get back there. Uh-huh, and that's the second big benefit uh, from research about mind-wandering, is creativity, hmm. that it's been shown to be uh, quite reliable, actually, uh, for coming to creative solutions. 
So what will happen is that if you're working on a problem, if, let's say, you're trying to figure out, you know, uh, what are the topics I really need to cover, you know, this month uh, on the show? Or, you know, for me, how, how am I going to put together this chapter in the book? Or a marketing director, like, you know, what's the, what, what needs to go into this pitch to really make it powerful? Mm-hmm. You know, how are we going to build this brand? Something where there isn't one obvious solution. So that would be something creative. So it doesn't have to be design work to be creative, but something where there isn't one obvious solution. There could be many solutions. Then we need a creative solution there. And so if you've been thinking about it, and then you daydream, and it can even be just for a few minutes, and then you come back to it, you're likely to come up with more creative solutions, and those solutions are likely to be rated as more creative. Hmm. The way that that's studied is there are some very common creativity tests that can be done in a laboratory setting. For example, you give somebody an object, and you say, come up with as many ideas as you can, and then somebody else who's not... Part of the study rates that for how creative the ideas are. And, uh, and so you can get a good sense of how creative people are being. Now, what happens, though, is that we're, we, are, we, we become more creative with those things we were working on before we daydreamed. Hmm. It doesn't just make us more creative in general. Yeah. So, 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 if yeah, you, so you have right, to have exactly. a problem. You have to kind of be focusing on the problem, I guess, and, and, I, and probably in deep into the problem. And then, and then I guess you can get people – I mean, this is interesting. I'm just trying to think how you operationalize this with your team out there. Then I just say, okay, let's stop the discussion about the problem for a minute and then go do some activity where they can just think whatever they want to. So that's one great way of doing it. Another way is to trust that those moments will happen later on in the day when yeah. they're going to be creative and have some way of capturing that at another time. Um, you can also – just have breaks that are where you really encourage people to just have some downtime and not be checking their email during the breaks, like where the breaks are built in just to let people kind of go get a drink of water, mm-hmm. things like that. So there can be specific tasks, there can be open breaks, and there can be trusting that the opportunities will come later. Yeah, just kind of trust. It's natural. It's a human process. And then, like you said, the going back to the first benefit, it'll it'll engage the entire, I guess, prefrontal cortex to play with both sides of the of the the higher brain, I call it. Hmm. Right, you're gonna you're gonna get you're gonna get uh, more access to this non-conscious activity as well as more integration of some of the circuits hmm. uh, in the prefrontal cortex. I love this, uh, Josh. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Josh Davis, uh, who is the author of the book Two Awesome Hours. And uh, a Psychology Today article that we found called How Zoning uh, Out Benefits Your Present and Your Future. Zoning out, folks. There's benefits to it. Uh, Apparently, it increases your creativity. It helps you use more of your your higher kind of processing brain. Um, We'll take a break. Come back. Continue to discuss more of the benefits on zoning out, on daydreaming, how it really might be your friend, not your foe. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Josh Davis is joining us. Uh, Dr. Uh, Davis is the author of Two Awesome Hours, Science-Based Strategies to Harness Your Best Time and Get Your Most Important Work Done. 
He's also the contributor to a Psychology Today article that we're discussing, How Zoning Out Benefits Your Present and Your Future. Dr. Davis is the Director of Research and Lead Professor for um, the uh, NLP Center of New York and is a, is a, a writer as well on Psychology Today. Uh, Dr. Davis, welcome back to the show. Hi, well, uh, thank you. This is so, uh, to me, this is so interesting because, again, we're fighting against the tradition, you know, grandma, everybody, you know, focus. They might hit you on the head with a ruler at school because you weren't paying attention. But apparently daydreaming, it uh, it has some serious uh, benefits to us. One, it helps us utilize our prefrontal cortex, I guess is what we're calling it, the the kind of the higher executive relating brain. Um, it also helps us increase our creativity. What are some other benefits that uh, we can derive from daydreaming? One of the other things that uh, daydreaming has been shown to be useful for is what we call autobiographical planning. So thinking about your own life, how to plan out those things that you want to achieve that are personally relevant to you. So, you know, when minds wander, uh, first of all, uh, they tend to actually wander to the future. Um, that uh, when we when we ruminate, when we just sort of drift, we tend to, we're more likely to be thinking about the future, it turns out. And this should come as no surprise, but everybody um, has, tends to think about themselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I, I can remember one time as a teenager that um, I was, I forget who I must have been talking to. Maybe it was some some girl I wanted to impress, and, and I was I was talking with my mom. I was all nervous, and and she said, "Do you want to know? Do you want to know what they were thinking about you?" And I said, "Yeah, I do." <laughs> I do. And she said, "They weren't. They were thinking about themselves." <laughs> you know, kind of, that's true, though, uh, huh? Lesson learned. Yeah. Yeah. So, but th- that's that's what happens when when our minds drift. We tend to think about ourselves, and we tend to think about the future. Now. Um, there are some benefits to that. One is that, on average, people do have rose-colored glasses when it comes to the future. Uh, if you've seen those Prudential commercials where they've got the Harvard professor and he's, he's having people put stickers with different colors on the, the past and the future. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and so they represent whether it's something positive or something negative. And in the past, it's, all, it's pretty evenly mixed. In the future, it's mostly positive stuff. So we imagine positive things. There's adaptive value to doing that, this sort of... This belief that things can work out seems to be useful in helping people to work more on achieving that. That we know that believing that something is possible goes a long way towards making it happen. Um, so, lots of ways in which self-fulfilling prophecies do occur in in research. Um, so, you know, with that, then uh, when we drift, when our minds do wander, those are some of the things that are most Hmm. relevant to us, that we're thinking about most. So it's an opportunity to kind of sort out, without even trying to, how you're going to get to where you want to be in your life. Um, Now, sometimes, of course, there's negative rumination, and it's anxiety. Anxiety, by the way, is about the future, pretty much. Yeah. Worried about whether something will have happened in the past, you're worried about something whether something will happen in the future. And on the on the flip side, though, then there's also sort of hope or excitement, but they tend to be about the future. So that helps us sort out how we're going to get to where we want to go. And if we're not doing that, we're very much stuck in a reactive kind of mode to whatever work is coming up. Right. So there's there's a, a third benefit of of mind wandering, and it seems like even on a subconscious level. If if I can see myself becoming the next thing I want to become in my life, and I can play it out, even if it's ov- overly positive, even naively optimistic, 
I, I guess it's still teaching me on some level that it's doable and this is how it could even happen and this is how it would feel. And I guess that's the neat thing about our brain is we can actually experience it without even having it yet. It is one of the, you know, one of the great abilities of the human mind is the ability to imagine something that isn't present, that hasn't happened. And of course, we don't know if other animals can do it, but we mm-hmm. know that humans can. And we can think about something that isn't actually occurring in the moment. And what happens is if we can imagine the future, then we can actually achieve it more easily because, well, first of all, we can actually think about logical steps to get there. But even if we haven't done that, we're actually activating the same kind of circuitry that will be relevant to taking the actions in the future. Yeah. So if I, you know, there's, and that, that's actually one of the, the strongest, best-known research-based ways of, it, of instilling a new habit is to literally, in your mind, imagine when and where, what environmental trigger is going to lead you to take the new habit. So if I'm trying to, to eat less ice cream at night, you know, then I can picture myself, if I imagine actually walking in uh, you know, after dinner, the precise new behavior that I'm going to take, and I picture when and where I'll be, I'm activating the same circuitry that's going to be relevant in that moment when it is after dinner, mm-hmm. and I choose something else instead of ice cream. Um, so, so that kind of activating of the circuitry ahead of time does increase the likelihood that we'll do it when the time comes. That is, that is it's amazing. And again, it's just how many kids have been out in the backyard shooting hoops thinking they're going to be winning that game-winning shot <laughs> And, you know, they might even find themselves in a situation to have a game-winning th- shot. Talk about your fourth, uh, the fourth benefit of daydreaming. Yeah, so this one, this one is really fun. Um, uh, are you familiar with the famous marshmallow study? You bet. Yeah, Stanford, so, yeah. So real quick for anyone listening who may not be, uh, you know, you, give a, you, you put a marshmallow in front of a four-year-old, and you tell the four-year-old, you can have this marshmallow, but if you wait and you don't tell them how long, Right, so an indefinite amount of time for a four-year-old. If you wait until I come back, you can have this other treat that we already know this particular kid prefers. Right. Right. So it turns out some of the kids actually wait the whole time, which is 15 minutes, right, and and end up getting the other treat. And then some kids give in at different points, and some kids give in right away. Now that ends up being predictive of so many things. So Walter Michelle did this work uh, almost 50 years ago, I believe, and has tracked this, these kids through life. It predicts things like SAT scores and marital satisfaction and job success and all kinds of things, you know, the, the, the ability to hold out and wait. Now, it turns out, though, that it's not just the ability, though. It's not just something that, that, you're, that, that you're born with that's special about these kids, but it's something they were doing. And that's uh, that... Dr. Michelle spent time really figuring out what were these kids doing that was different in the, in the two groups. Hmm. And the kids who were holding out were reframing the situation as something else. They were reframing the challenge as something besides just trying to not eat the marshmallow. And then that's what made it possible. So they were, they were rethinking what they were dealing with. So the kids who gave in right away, they were thinking about how tasty the marshmallow would be. The kids who waited, they were thinking about... Uh, it as like a puffy cloud that they were looking at, <laughs> or a game, or they were thinking about what would happen, like how much they wanted the other treat, you know, that was going to come later. Right. And they had a different way of thinking about the challenge, and what daydreaming allows us to do is to rethink the situation so that it's easier to hold out for something better. And again, it's sort of that element of being just kind of less reactive to the moment, but being able to kind of 
have that opportunity to rethink so that we can hold out for something better. Interesting. So it, stra- it strengthens us, and it, it probably even makes more tasty or delicious the prize. <laughs> it does. It does. Interesting. That's right. So it really is. It's kind of a character building. It's a distraction, but it's a it's a distraction that actually helps us to reframe our challenges in life. It does. And when so what we do. So here's here's why I think it's so important to talk about this issue. It's not just that you know it's sort of an interesting aside about mind wandering. Did you know that actually it has these benefits? But if you think about what we're not getting in the ways that we often live these days, that. We, you know, you're, you're sitting in front of your computer, you're working constantly, and then you want to take a break. What do you do? You pull up your phone or you go to a different website. It's sort of this constant intake of media, mm-hmm. right? So we actually, we're, we're blocking so many of the opportunities for mind-wandering that we used to have. And oh, when we're yeah. blocking those opportunities, we're not getting this, this, this autobiographical planning this creativity, this, you know, integration of neural circuits, uh, you know, the holding out for something better. It's not that we're not getting that at all, but we're not getting as much of it, you know, because we're, we don't have those opportunities. So we're actually, we're actually interfering with um, some things that would really make our work a lot easier uh, if, by, by, by living in a way where we're blocking a lot of the mind-wandering that could be there. Yeah, it's almost like... It's kind of reactive versus proactive. Mind wandering, daydreaming is a, it seems like proactive uh, wandering versus you know being on your phone is more reactive wandering. It's it's the information. It's 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 wasting time reactively by the media coming to us versus us going out and generating using our brain to generate these other things. And so before today, did you expect you to find yourself saying that mind-wandering is proactive? Well, actually, I always have found it very beneficial to get away from my uh-huh. life that way. <laughs> no, but, uh-huh. you know, and I, and I, I do, I, I use it a lot in the autobiography sense in imagining and visioning. But the, the funny thing is I still have this pang of guilt if I do it too much. And I'm, I'm never sure if that guilt is justified, like am I overdoing this or if – it's just kind of socialized. <laughs> well, uh, there probably would be no way to know uh, if it's too much, but you know, you know, you can always come back to what really matters. Am I enjoying my life? Do I have work-life balance? Am I succeeding at the things I want to succeed at? You know, like, and, and if you are, then it's probably not too much. You know, so right. there's, there's uh, the thing is also with mind wandering that some of the things that are really good for it, like staring out the window. What I, another thing I like about them is that there's this, this built-in endpoint that you don't get if you go online and start, you know, reading the news or yeah. Facebook or email, you know, because there you can be lost for an hour. But if you, start, if you stare out the window, you're going to get bored. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, five minutes later, that, you've had enough. You're going to drift back to work. So you'll be back to work more quickly, usually, if you really let yourself do something that's, that's good for mind-wandering. If you stand up and just you know, take a walk, or if you, you know, if you have a balcony or something, step outside and get some fresh air, or, you know, something like that. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I mean, and we, we see it right here, Josh, in our offices. They're building a, a new building between uh, our building and the, the Marriott Center basketball court where BYU plays. And uh, we have students all the time, people, faculty, everybody, all the time just standing there watch, looking out the window. And you, uh-huh. you, you think... Are we wasting time? But you're, I mean, they don't. No one stays there for like three hours. It's a few right. minutes, and then you do kind of get bored. And yeah. okay, back to work.
Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, I would say, what I would say is that, and this is what I do say to people whenever I get the chance, if your mind wants to wander, let it. And the thing is, trust that if you just indulge in that, you'll really give yourself a chance to kind of switch off and your mind goes wherever it goes, is that you're actually probably going to spend more time on task working on the stuff that matters. Mm. Yeah. And you're, you're also engaging and exercising your brain in other ways. Dr. Josh Davis, thank you so much. Great stuff. Uh, again, go, go check out the book, um, Two Awesome Hours, Science-Based Strategies to Harness Your Best Time and Get Your Most Important Work Done. And also look him up on Psychology Today. He has a wonderful blog there called Your Mental Toolkit, where you can get many, many articles uh, by Dr. Josh Davis. Thank you so much. We'll take a break, folks. Come back, wrap up this second hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Again, trying to elevate your game, help you understand uh, a lot of the things that are going on inside your head and how they impact your life. Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, if you go to Josh Davis's site, Two Awesome Hours, our last guest, science-based strategies to harness your best time and get your most important work done, you can enter in your, your name on a mailing list, and then he will send you all of his latest articles, which are science-based articles about, you know, how to how to get stuff done, about how to be productive. Um, it's, you know, isn't it great how your mind works? And what's funny about it is daydreaming has always existed. I mean, Adam and Eve always used to daydream from the beginning of time. People daydream, and it's it's your brain's ability to, to kind of sort itself out and create a vision and use your imagination. It's powerful. Um, so, some do that, right? And then some just immediately jump back to technology. There's a crazy story about a man uh, in China. Chen Zitong is an ordinary guy with an extraordinary hidden talent that he only discovered last year, and it's now kind of gotten him in a little bit of trouble. He is the master of the arcade claw machine, right? So you know those machines that like have stuffed animals in them, and then you, you have to you guide the crane, and then you drop it. You drop the, cl- the, the claw, and it picks up a, an animal. And, well, it seems, like a, you know, it seems like a scam, you know, a useless gift. But this guy has taken it to a whole new level. He... Um, he has actually grabbed a whopping 3,000 toys in just six months, <laughs> right? 3,000 toys in just six months, making him a celebrity at a local mall in China. He's so good that claw machine owners actually invite him to dinner and try to convince him to stop using their machines. The first time I played, I w- it was last year in July, Chen told the local media. He said, I saw the machine in the entrance of a supermarket. I didn't think much of it. It was just a way to kill time. He enjoyed himself, so he kept playing whenever he visited the mall. And within a month, he got pretty good at it. So much so that people would gather around him and watch him play. The claw. The claw. Remember the claw? Mm. This guy's so good that they're actually asking him not to play anymore. He's won over 3,000 toys. They're now his house is filled with them. They're all over the bed, the couch, the floor, the dining table, even his kitchen. He's like probably giving stuffed animals away to the lovely ladies, signing autographs on the back of a stuffed animal. 
Mm. See, Ben? You can become good at anything, Ben. You know, anything you focus on. But do I want to focus on something like that? Well, no, I would prefer that you just focus on your job. And then someday you get really good at it. You just just get good at it. What are you saying? What? Am I not good at my job? No, no, no. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, you know, you're good. Okay. Okay, we'll take a break, folks. Uh, When we come back, a whole new hour, more ideas, more tools to help you live longer, love stronger. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. It's Friday. It's Friday. I have big plans. Do you? No. You don't? No, I probably clean the yard. Boring. It's warmed up. All the snow's gone. I have to go clean up the yard. They say it's supposed to get cold again. Oh, I hope so. Don't make me have to mow the lawn. I know. I told you last week or a couple days ago, I put together my fertilizer calendar. I know. That is so weird. Yeah. Well, you have to do it every two months. So. Keep the lawn healthy. So I set, a, I set an alert so I'll remember. I just do it on a Saturday for about an hour. My fertilizer calendar is now full. That's great. Yeah, all my dates set through September. It'd be great. <laughs> I probably need to do that. I mean, I definitely, definitely need to do that. But it was kind of depressing because I really enjoy the winter because you don't have to do that. You I know. Just sit around and enjoy it, life. Catch up on your Netflix. Right. And now all that time is going to be spent mowing the lawn. I mean, I know. Time. You're going to get behind. Yeah. Like, how... Anyway, it's kind of tragic. It's All like this... mow the lawn, watch TV. Oh, family. Now we'll have more family time out in the yard. I think my wife may have damaged her knee. Ooh. Weeding our yard. We have some big weeds. Apparently. She, I think, tore her meniscus. Ooh. So just a warning for everybody out there in listener land. Don't weed unless you stretch first (laughs) and she's in incredible shape walks million miles a week and now she's down down for the count Mm. weeding injury that's why i won't do it don't weed that's why that's why she has to weed because i'm not gonna weed well you you have kids send them out there yeah they were out there we don't know when it happened Mm. it could have been you know we got a new car it could be it could have been when she was flooring it in the new car. Right. You never know. You never know. Hey, today, great show. We'll be reviewing some movies with Rod Gustafson. We're going to, we got to, you know, dive into the newest, latest, greatest releases. 10 Cloverfield Lane. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah. There was a movie called Cloverfield, which dealt with, um, like, they do the found footage type movie where people have their little hand cameras and they're running yeah. around. And it was in New York and there was, like, a monster attack. 
but you never quite got a look at what it was. Oh, it, it was kind of the That's movie. Scary. The movie did well. It was kind of scary. This movie, people didn't even know about this until the trailer hit the theaters, and everyone was like, "What?" Hmm. And so it's Ten Cloverfield Lane. So it's a different approach to something. But you have John Goodman in it, and there's a bomb John- shelter, and so man, Rod will talk about it more coming up. But apparently, it's being reviewed very well. And then it's, it's a, that thing where they don't show you the scary thing. Yeah, but, but you, you might just see like a, a shadow of it. Or it's something. tense. They they really heighten up the yeah. the excitement for it. So it could be an interesting movie. See, those movies make me nervous. Yeah, I was distracted yesterday because they put out a new Captain America Civil War trailer. Hmm. And right at the yeah, end, that just and you, you said that distracted you. I was done. Well, there's like you were Spider-Man. done, and then right at the end, Spider Man comes in. Hold it. Yeah. This is a trailer. This is a this is a one and a half minute. Two and a half minute. Sorry, two and a half minute two advertisement a half. of a movie that will be coming out in what, six months? May. May. Yeah. Three months, two yeah. months. And you it's a big and, deal. and it ruined your day. I mean it, it, I was unproductive the rest of the day. <laughs> I had to go back and watch because you know, Black Panther's in there and then the Scarlet Witch and Vision, the Android and just wow. all this stuff. And then they launch Ant-Man on an arrow through Iron Man's fingers. It's crazy. Wow. And then right at the end, Iron Man goes, I'm tired of this. And he screams out, underoos. And then Spider-Man comes flying in, takes Captain America's shield and goes, hi, guys. Hmm. And then at that point, I was like, oh, my God, Spider-Man. Hey, Ben. Yes. Can I I ask your help with something? Yes. (sighs) Will you please be Terry's friend? I have enough friends. I don't think so, Terry. And they like Captain America. So Terry, we're good. you obviously don't. Did you hear what you just said? I did. It was, you have to watch the trailer. Terry, it's it's a sad thing when Matt's asking me to be you, your friend. You will watch the trailer and go, I want to see that movie. I might, And in a, two weeks, Batman versus Superman. <sighs> oh, Yeah. Terry, I, I would like, I'm this sure, the movie. This is going to be a good I would like for me. But I would not know the name of any of the people you talked about. Yeah, and? And I would not go off on it for a minute. Well, it's like when you... With the, the excitement of a eight-year-old. What's the guy with the Love Languages book? Remember that um, guy? Gary Chapman. Yeah, you, when we had him on, you kept going, this is such a big deal. And I'm like, who He's is great this guy? author. I've no idea. I've never heard of this before. So it's a, kind of the same thing. You have your interests. I have my interests. Yeah, mine are just, I guess, mine are firmly planted really cool in reality. Stuff blows up and people <laughs> are writing arrows and Spider-Man. I mean, come on. Hey, yesterday on the show, um, did you <laughs> You're have talking it? about the love languages. Did, I'm just pointing things out. Did you, when you went home, did yes. you have any backlash uh, well, from I, bringing up the oh, yes. beat down of the child with I the, shared that with my wife. Yeah, the foam She understands lightsaber. me, so she didn't see any, any issues with it. And she's witnessed what happens and yeah. understands there's nobody getting hurt here. Did DCFS my, show up? No, I, I, I shared it with my mother. Okay. She said, I can see where that could be problematic. That was pro- <laughs> kind of how her sentiment went after good. I shared that with her. Good, good, my good. father just shaked his head. Yeah, that's my boy. That's my boy. Ugh. Lucky he's still out of prison. And my, my boy <laughs> wanted to play with the lightsaber some more. Once again, Ben, um, I need you to be Terry's friend. Yeah, it worries me just that you're asking me. I know. Me. It worries me to ask you. Now, was that poorly worded on my part? Absolutely. Absolutely. I could have phrased that a different way. And don't you think that there's a connection between your love of all of these 
uh, child Marvel comic heroes. Right. Mm-hmm. And? And the beatdown of a lightsaber, foam lightsaber, be, that you and your son well, do. Be, be careful. He's going all psychiatrist. Yeah, you. I know. Don't you think part, there's a connection? Part of that is I have to defend myself against my child. That's that's true. Except your child's four? Yes. So, but am I just supposed to stand there and, and, and take this, this beating from, from a, a pool noodle lightsaber? Or, yeah. or should I yes. defend myself? Well, you you could just block his noodle, well, do a little noodle block. But I have my own lightsaber. It has my name on it. Yeah. Right on the handle it says Terry. I mean, you just keep making my point, Terry. <laughs> you, there's a point when you just say, you know what? I'm just gonna I'm just gonna block his Strike. noodle. Yeah. And then, you know, nah. call it that. Okay, and whatever, whatever. I'm, t- I'm teaching him hey, survival techniques. Hey, He's good. You'll pay for the therapy later. It doesn't matter. He, he's going to grow up very well adjusted. He will. With a, a deep interest in certain fictional characters that and, his father is obsessed with. And a head injury. No, they're pool noodles. Oh, there right. is no head injury. This is They just sound worse. Oh, yeah. Their bark is worse than their bite. Absolutely. Right. So, Ben, <laughs> he's available about 10 10 to 11, 11.30, he's available every day on the sh- after the show. Yeah, pretty what, much. What's the compensation? Uh, talk to Don about that, but I think I'd actually talk to HR. They may okay. have a hazard, hazard pay sort of clause somewhere mm-hmm. that you could take advantage wow. of. It, it sounds like Terry's up for it, too. <laughs> it's crazy. So we're going to have Rod talk to us about 10 Cloverfield Lane. We also will have Ben and Joe in here, and we're going to try one more time. Just one more. Try to get this right. Uh, we always bring the producers in to do a segment. All of the producers have performed incredibly, except the next duo we'll be talking with today, Ben and Joe. They've struggled. They've but struggled. I'm, I'm bringing in a new set of jokes. Like No, 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 no. But complaint but for complaint. They're, they're only saddling the line. Uh, complaint for complaint. They have more <clears throat> complaints against them. I'd prefer you stay away from the line. The last time you were on... You and Joe were going to going well, heading right down the highway of interesting, heading towards teaching Matt a, a huge life yeah. lesson, and then you just turned the car into the wall. Yeah. And, and it was I just, carnage. Just stay away from that. Um, today, you two will be teaching me what? We're going to teach you how to haggle. Okay. <laughs> I already see problems with that one. But um, haggling. Yes. Haggling with Joe. And Ben, uh, I think we're going to lean it a little heavier toward Joe. A little less Ben. No Joe, offense. Joe has a costume for the show, so there's some preparation that's going on. For the haggling show. Yes. See, this is why we need to live stream. Then people could see the costume. Okay, great. Uh, let's get to the headlines, Terry. What's going on around the rest of the world? Republican frontrunner Donald Trump and Senator Marco Rubio sparred over their views on Islam in Thursday night's presidential primary debate with the business mogul doubling down on his comments that Muslims hate Americans. Trump refused to back off his recent comments that Islam hates the West, adding that he wasn't concerned with being politically correct by avoiding such statements. In a sharply worded comeback, Rubio responded, I am not interested in being politically correct. I'm interested in being correct. The Florida senator reminded Trump of the Muslims buried at Arlington National Cemetery and those serving in the U.S. military, saying that the only way to confront the issue is to work with Muslims who are not radicals. Ted Cruz added that Trump's solutions on Islamist militants, as well as trade, were not so simple. But the answer is not simply to yell, China bad, Muslims bad. You've got to understand the nature of the threats we're facing and how you deal with them. So there's time, it's kind of some teaming up on the 
I guess, harsher uh, uh, comments from Trump earlier in the week. Mm. So interesting. Ohio and Florida primaries on Tuesday. That's the next big. We're calling it Super Tuesday 3. That's, <laughs> That's a, right. a Matt Townsend yeah. copyright. Yeah. Trademark. Super Tuesday 3. Super Tuesday did, 3. did you file that, by the way? Yeah. Okay. Well, my people did. I'm your people. My other people. He has other okay. people. The people that do things. <laughs> Those people. Moving on. Thomas Frieden, director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, said that the Zika virus growing, their growing links to various birth defects and neurological disorders are worse than initially feared. There has never been a mosquito-borne virus that could cause serious birth defects on such a large scale until Zika, he added. Frieden used a press conference Thursday to ask for funds from Congress to help battle the virus. Frieden said there is nothing about Zika's control that is quick or easy. Hmm. So this may hang around for a while. Wow. Zika's scary. I mean, we don't need to be too afraid, but these are kids. These are babies. Yeah. Long-lasting. <sighs> and uh, mosquitoes. Ramifications there. The Wounded Warrior Projects. Have you been following any of the issues surrounding their uh, CEO? No. No. CBS did a expose, if you will, of some of the lavish spending that's gone on at some of their company retreats. Mm. They're based out of Florida, and they ended up at some luxury uh, retreat oh, place that, in Colorado, yeah. and there's all this spending and all this money that's gone out. But they're using money they've raised through fundraisers for the Wounded Warrior Project. Right. So theoretically, money's supposed to go to the warriors. The warriors. But they say that because they're treating their employees well, they can help, and they can in turn do their jobs better, which serves the veterans. But I, I guess they're not taking the warriors on the trips. They're just taking their employees on the trips. That's right. And they're lavish. Hmm. So yesterday, the board of directors fired its two top executives following an earlier CBS News investigation into the lavish spending on parties and conferences. Uh, CEO Stephen Nardiz and COO Al Gardano were fired after a meeting in New York. Their investigation found that the Wounded Warrior Project, which has raised more than a billion dollars since 2003, spent 40 to 50 percent of the donations on overhead compared to other veterans' charities with overhead costs of 10 to 15 percent. Hmm. So they spent 40 to 50 of what yeah, they took spending in a lot more. versus 10 to 15. CBS News spoke with more than 40 former employees who said outrageous spending started after the CEO took over in 2009. Ooh. So he's out. They're going to try to write the ship, it <sighs> looks like. According to a new study, that's my yeah. set. First is a Florida man. That's the best way to start okay. a story. Yeah. The second is Accor- a new study. According to a new study. Women are more than two times as likely to get a response on the online in the online dating world if they send the message first. Really? The research published by dating website OkCupid using data from its own website also suggests that the women who message first are more likely to chat with more attractive men. Conversely, women tend to be approached by men who are less attractive than they are. Okay. The majority of women don't send the first message in online dating conversations. Women are 3.5 times less likely to send the first message than men, according to the study. So if they take the first step... It usually ends up in a better situation. Yeah, because then the guy is safe. Like, she's obviously into me. But usually the men that approach the women are less attractive. You want to go out with me? Yeah. They have a snaggletooth or something. I've been trying to teach Ben how to approach the ladies. And, you know, what's interesting, honestly. Uh, Hasn't got him a date yet, but Mm. he had two opportunities where he normally would have been arrested or detained by police. 
And that didn't happen because we taught him a new method. I, I only have a restraining order. Just the know. one. He's Just down to one. one. But he started with five. Do you remember? Yeah. yeah. So Real progress. I'm telling you, I'm a coach. I'm a, I'm like a, there, you know how there's like a dog whisperer or a horse whisperer? I'm like a Ben whisperer. I don't know if I like that. Shh. Quiet. <laughs> Be quiet, Ben. <laughs> Go to your happy place. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we'll be uh, reviewing uh, some movies with Rod Gustafson. Also, we'll have Ben and Joe Carson, two of our producers, coming in, teaching us the art of haggling. We're going to give that a try, see if we can work with them on air one more time. Uh, Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Coach, your guide on the... Hey, guess what? We are going to be talking with our great friend Rod Gustafson and uh, the work uh, that he does at ParentPreviews.com. Rod uh, is a film critic specializing in in reviewing movies and media from a parent's perspective. And uh, Rod, you're telling me earlier that uh, it's a little warm up there in Canada. Oh, yeah. Has it been warm this winter? In fact, we've had about three weeks of winter. I think I'm going to need to start watering the grass here soon, which is unheard of. Is it uh, this early you're going to have to water? Maybe yeah, let it go, Rod. Yeah. Let it go. <laughs> Just xeriscape it. Just throw some rocks out there. Yeah, yeah. I know that. <laughs> I think that's what we're going to need to start no, doing. Don't do, do it. Don't landscape. You'll, you'll, you'll regret it, I think, later. Because then you'll get all this snow and, and great weather and you'll want your yard back. Hey, talk to us about this movie, uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane. I had never even heard about it, and I'm hearing it's getting great reviews. Nobody had heard about this movie. This is really interesting. So a little bit of a backstory. There was a movie a few years ago that came out called Cloverfield. I still can't really determine if there is... I mean, there is a little bit of a story alignment between these two movies, but it would be unfair to call this one a sequel because it is so much better than that first one was that made me motion sick because the whole thing was done with a handheld, you know, first-person perspective camera. It was horrible. Anyway, enough of the old movie. (laughs) Now on to the new one, 10 Cloverfield Lane. Now, first of all, Matt, as you say, you always so kindly introduced me as reviewing movies from a parent's perspective, moms and dads probably don't take the kids to mm. this. Maybe the oldest of teenagers would be <clears throat> about your, your best bet for this movie. However, if you're looking for a high-quality, well-made thriller, and if you're the type of person who enjoys the roller coaster ride of the really good scare in the movie, this one could be a good pick. because And this is not my favorite genre by any means, Matt. Um, I'm not one that enjoys no. getting scared, but I do have respect for the occasional filmmaker who digs back into the roots of Alfred Hitchcock, who can scare us without a lot of violence and gore. And that is what this movie does. Now, I can't say much about the movie because there are so many little twists and turns. I, I need to be careful. I don't give anything away and spoil it for people. Hmm. But it is essentially a story of a, a, a young woman who's driving along a road and it's dark and late at night. She has a car accident. She is unconscious. She wakes up and she is in this room that looks like a bunker because that's really what it is. And she's hooked up to an IV cord. She's chained to a pipe on the wall. 
And of course, she is just panicked as to what's happened to her. And then finally, and there's this big metal door that's locking this room. Finally, the door opens and in walks this man. His name is Howard, and he's played by John Goodman. And of course, if you know John Goodman, he's a huge guy. Yeah. And, and he tells this woman, because she is very upset, and she says, don't hurt me, let me go. And he says, I saved your life, and this is how you're treating me. So what's cool about this movie, Matt, is he, he essentially he tells her that she can't go back outside because there's been a big attack. He doesn't know if it's the Russians, if it's the Martians. And, of course, she, he's, she is looking at him like, there is no way. You're lying to me, and you've kidnapped me, and you just don't want me to leave. And so you spend the whole movie, well, most of the movie, wondering, can we trust Howard? Mm. Is he telling the truth? Or is he just some, some you know, maniacal guy who has kidnapped this woman and is going to do who knows what to her? And so the whole movie plays upon the audience's ability to trust. And it moves back and forth during the movie. You know, there's yeah. a section where we think, oh, Howard's a nice guy. <laughs> Another section where we think, oh, Howard's a horrible guy. And that's essentially what happens in this film. It's really cool how it works on a psychological level. And is it still filmed uh, kind of in the handheld movie genre? No, it is not, which is wonderful. It, this is much more traditionally filmed. Pretty okay. much the whole place takes place. The whole thing takes place in this bunker that Howard has built. And Howard is one of those guys where he is, he's, he's built this big bomb shelter and he's made it like a second home. And, and I, I'm, I'm not trying to offend anybody in the listening audience, but some people are almost excited about crawling into their bomb's shelters. Yeah, and right. And one of those people. <laughs> and so now that this supposed attack has happened, he's down there and he's ready to, to hold out there for a year or two. But, you know, from this woman's perspective, who does not have any clue what's happened outside, if anything has happened outside, and she's thinking, and you're basically kidnapping me down here for two years. And so that's the setup, and it works very well. Wow, intense. And then, uh, so overall, it's it's a movie you wouldn't necessarily take the younger kids to, the older teenagers, um, and you liked it. What What grades did you end up giving it? Well, I ended up, this was a tough one to grade. I gave it a B grade overall. Now, and, you know, so here's some of the issues with this film. There are some discussions of implied sexual violence. And, and so that means we don't see any violence on the screen, but there is some discussion alluding to that topic. So, you know, sexual content, we're giving it a B. You know, other than seeing this, other than seeing this captured girl, Michelle, in her underwear for a brief moment, that's really, you know, the extent of the sexual content. Profanity, Matt, there are three um, swear words in this entire film. Wow. One of them, though, is the usual sexual ex- expletive, and we always mark that one hard. So it gets a C- minus for profanity, but there's only the three words in the movie. Amazing. Um, and the violence, as I say, it isn't gory, but there is some violence in this film. There are physical altercations that happen between these people. There's another man that's in the bomb shelter as well. He's another guy that got in. He, he claims he saw a flash on the horizon, and he got in just at the last minute because he helped Howard build this bomb shelter. Huh. But Howard really didn't want him in there. So basically, you got these three people in there. And there are some altercations between them and that type of thing as well. And, um, and I mean, this is one of those movies where you're on the edge of your seat for the entire film. <laughs> so it. Uh, it really is a high-anxiety film. And yeah. if you don't like 
high anxiety, then this isn't the movie. This for you. isn't the one. Oh, I don't. My heart rate goes up just thinking about it. Oh, your heart rate will go up in this one. Oh no. Well, Rod, I appreciate it. this. is a great. This is a great uh, pick. And as well, everyone, you, you can go to parentpreviews.com and see the entire review plus all of the other movies that they have reviewed uh, on that site. Rod, you're doing great work there, and we appreciate you being on the show with us today. Oh, thank you very much, Matt. By the way, I should mention that we also have The Little Prince and The Young Messiah releasing today. I think both of those will be much more family-friendly. We didn't get pre-screenings for them, so we're hoping to have at least one of those reviews up on the website later today. Okay, great. And so they can look into those for the weekend as well. Rod Gustafson, thanks again. Parentpreviews.com, everybody. Go check it out. It really is a powerful source for your media choices to make sure you're informed. We'll take a break, and when we come back, we're going to be uh, trying one more time. We're going to give our guys one more chance to see if they can redeem themselves uh, from the last uh, time we had Joe Carson and uh, our own Ben Wasden on the show. They're going to be talking about haggling, you know, a skill everybody needs to learn. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, we're coming back uh, with one of my uh, favorite segments, usually, of the week. It's called Meet the Producers. Um, Last time we had our two guests, Joe Carson, or Joseph Carson, and uh, Benjamin Wasden. Last time we had them on the show, uh, Ben uh, told some inappropriate jokes, and we have um, been disciplining him ever since. So we appreciate you guys being here, and I know you're, you're going to talk to us about haggling today. I just – one thing I do need to do, uh, uh, Don, my boss, asked me to be very clear that none of the things that Ben says on the show uh, are, are – um, are, what's the word? Are backed, are supported by the Matt Townsend Show or BYU Broadcasting. And because of that, we will also be editing much of what he says as he's talking using sounds – like that in order to make sure that certain words that he might normally say don't come out over the air. But but then when I say something that's that's correct, we have Okay. So it works. Now, let's get to uh, to uh, you Joseph. Um lead us into the discussion about haggling. And by the way, Joseph is decked out uh, wearing a tie, a nice uh, gray uh, a blue blazer, gray slacks. And he's striking poses while I'm talking to him. So why did you decide to bring up haggling? Well, here's the thing. Uh, when you buy stuff, a lot of times if it's expensive or if the price is negotiable, people will try to get a, you know, more money out of you. Right. I mean, it's natural. You want to get you want to get money for your for your product. But but you deserve to have a little bit of a, you know, a guy in your corner too. Someone someone making sure that you've got as good of a deal as you can get. So so you're going to help us. Like th- there's the art of the deal, which was the work of Donald Trump, and you're you're going to teach us the art of the haggle. We are great. Yeah. And- so how we haggle with people, you know, that are trying to sell us something. If we can haggle them down and get a better price, that's great. I just bought a car. It would have been great to have done this a couple weeks ago. Yeah, and that's why we bring the topic up because we knew that you were looking for a car and we we wanted to. <laughs> We wanted to help you find a, a good price for it. Um, the the most important thing in our deep 
rooted scientific research that we've found is is one of the <laughs> is Joe back to you <laughs> haggling is a very cultural kind of subject that's okay. it's uh, the rules and and tactics that you want to choose change completely depending on the culture that you're in like if you're in Southeast Asia yeah. if you're in Vietnam some people want you to haggle mm-hmm. yeah and so here's a question, Matt. Are you talking? Yes. You took my button away. <laughs> <laughs> Should you smile when you haggle? Yes. Yeah? In certain countries, yes. Yeah. It, you're, you're right. It, it depends which country you're in or which area you're Interesting. in. Interesting. And so in Southeast Asia, um, you, you want to smile because yeah, it's, it's friendly. They, they want to make sure that you're, you're not super like, annoyed or yeah, angry, that you're angry. not getting ticked off. That's but, good. But then in places like Egypt and Tunisia, Tunisia, uh-huh. they it's a lot harder, and people are a lot more serious about yeah. getting the deal, uh-huh. and so you have to be more aggressive. And if you smile, you'll be seen as weak. Oh man! What so, about in South America? Like when you're getting off a cruise ship in Central America or the Caribbean, and they want to sell you something? Pray you speak Spanish. Mm. E, I do. You also Yo gotta, hablo if you watch. Uh, when you when you smile when you're making a deal, sometimes it uh, it lets you seem friendly. It makes you seem like if you're enthusiastic, mm-hmm. you seem more willing to to buy the item. Okay. So sometimes they'll they'll get you know more money out yeah. of you if 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 they realize that you're like yeah you want it. I like to I like to just give a low bid and then I walk away. Like hey, there's a store just like yours right next to yours, so I'll just go over there. Yeah, and and that's a problem that a lot of Americans face because they're so used to having a sticker on the item that tells the price that they're not used to haggling, and so they accept whatever the vendor. This is great, because you you will be leaving for your mission, Joe, to Taiwan, right? Absolutely. And uh, and Ben was in Germany. Do they haggle in Germany? Um, so they have morning markets, and so you can haggle there. Okay. But every everywhere else, and they have Christmas markets, and you, you can haggle there. Just like certain fun markets to go ha- haggle in. That's interesting. Yeah. The little Christmas haggle. And then in Taiwan, do they haggle? I bet they do. They do. They're, uh, the night markets in Taipei are a pretty big thing in the city. They sell lots of food, fried mm. squid, and I'm sure there's other like – Do you have to haggle for your food price? I don't know. That I, seems I weird. I feel like that would be inappropriate in most situations. Yeah. Because if you're they're selling the same thing to a lot of different people, I tried to haggle at Chipotle. <laughs> they got mad. Well, there's there's actually advice for when you haggle in China. They they discourage haggling for for your meal unless there's nobody in the restaurant, and so you can haggle for a lower price because you're their only customer. Mm-hmm. But would you actually want to eat the food where no one goes? That's your decision. I guess right there you're haggling with your health. You trade yeah. the price. For potentially you know, getting dysentery. stomach pumping, yeah, yeah. Sure. But we we wanted to give you a couple because okay. obviously there are some cultural things that yeah. you need to be aware right. of, but there are some uh, golden tips that you also keep in mind when you're haggling, and we wanted to give you a couple of those for your next car purchase or your okay. next. Okay, good, good. Okay, so I mean, to, I, just you know, I mean, I'm I'm 46 years old. I've been haggling a long time. To lead into this segment, we thought it'd be fun. If I uh, if I maybe haggled a bit to um, okay to increase my wage. Oh, you're gonna haggle I'm, with I'm me. I'm gonna haggle for for a better wage. Okay, okay, great. So do I do I get to I'll haggle back. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a negotiation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, that's so great. Let's uh, for the the segment's sake, let's pretend that I make one dollar an hour. 
Let's not pretend. Okay. Yeah. Let's just let's just speak the truth. So, Make one dollar. Uh, so uh, what are you what are you willing to offer? One dollar. All right. Hmm. hmm. Actually, fifty cents. Hmm. What about uh, counter offer here? What about three hundred dollars an hour? How does? Okay, let me think about that. Hmm. What about thirty cents? Hmm. Maybe I'll take it down to one fifty. Okay. Dollars an hour. Okay, I'm going to take it down to twenty cents. I, I think we're getting close to a deal here. What if we What if we scaled it back yeah. and found like a nice median point? Okay. Of seventy five dollars an hour. <gasps> Ooh, tempting. Um, how about ten cents? And I'll let you sit by Ben. Hmm. And we'll get you shots. Hmm. That's uh. That's close. What if? What if? Uh. I'm gonna I'm gonna settle at one dollar an hour, and uh, okay, you know uh, I've, I've found on. better prices elsewhere. I'm just uh, I'm gonna gonna walk away from this one. Just uh, all right, okay. Well, when you're walking away, away. I'm just gonna send Donna up in HR. Leaving. I'm just gonna send her sixty cents, is what I'm settling on, and shots, and you get to sit next to Ben, and I won't make you dress up. Now we we had this example because we wanted to show. Almost everything you're not supposed to do. Okay, so that was the bad example. Yeah, for for example, okay, Joe is very finely dressed. Yeah, and generally when you're you're haggling at a flea market or something like that, you, you want to dress down. You don't so want to look don't. rich, right? But um, a cultural thing or like a situational thing when you're buying a, a car or a higher price item, uh-huh. you want to dress up so you look serious and business. Oh, interesting. See, because I didn't dress up when I bought my car. Mm. Ah! Might have heard you in the long run. Yeah, yeah. I'm totally. back, by the way. Oh. I, I decided maybe we, we could settle. Uh, okay. No, so, we did settle. 60, 60 cents. That's a good price, yeah. You settle for that? Okay. And shots. Here's a, another tip. Um, w- what I did in my mind is you yeah. got to secretly decide on your maximum price, what wage you're settle f- you're going to settle for. I ended up settling in my mind before we even started for 60 cents. Yeah. So when it's... I got 60 cents plus the benefits, like I was happy with the outcome. You were happy with the outcome because it was pleased. it was less than one dollar. Right. So we we found a good uh, this is great a good median. I because I was I was thinking I I won't go I will not pay you less than 20 cents, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't pay you more than 60. So when you so set boundaries, it stops you from being convinced to pay more than you're willing. That's good. Uh, another thing that I did, I don't know if you noticed, but I let you speak first. You mm. let the other person make the first offer. Uh, when you place the first offer, if you're not super confident in your skills, um, sometimes it can come off as you're being desperate or like yeah. that's – Yeah, that's if, very good. If you want it more than they do, the ball is in their court. They've right. got all the bargaining power. That's good. That's really good. Give me one more. We only got time for one more point. And I'd like you to make it, Joe, because I'm, I'm appreciating Ben's quietness. Because I, 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 I can talk if you'd like. <laughs> no, just because the last time, just the last time still rings in my head that we... One of the, the most important tips yeah. is to always be ready to just get up and walk away. At the end, you know, I walked away and I ended up getting a good bargain because <laughs> sometimes with every single step, yeah. they'll start throwing lower prices at you. No, that's so, true. You do the walk away. And if you're never too emotionally invested in the deal... You've got leverage. Have you ever noticed that, like, like Ben never does the walk away, but I want—I mean, like, I wanted him to, but he just he just stays. 
That's because I work here, Matt. We love Ben. Okay, well, these are great tips. That walk away almost worked. Almost. But you also kept looking at me like, I'm not really walking away. I'm faking. Well, I had Don't to stay fake in the studio. It. Couldn't open the door. In the... But <sighs> but now next time you buy a car, you're not going to no, pay totally. $30,000 more than you That's right. are and, supposed to. And they got to love it up here at BYU Broadcasting because we just got Ben down to $0.60 cents an hour. No, that was Joe. I'm... I'm still twenty. No, I thought I, was, I thought you were doing it for each other. No, no, no. Joe's like I, I, I already have myself, my worm yeah. shots. Okay. Oh, okay. I thought you guys are haggling together. I thought it was two for sixty cents. We'll have to haggle later on that. Good job, Joseph Carson. You nailed it. Well done, Joe. Thank you very Way much. Way to go. Way to keep it clean. Way to keep it right. And Ben, uh, good job too. Thanks for being. Oh, thank you. Thanks for working with Joe and and letting me edit your bit. We're going to take a break, folks. Come back. When we come back, we'll be hanging out with our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, finding out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Stick with us. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Enjoying a little Taylor Swift as we shoot it down to our incredibly awesome, wonderful, Swift-like friends at BYU Sports Nation. Jerem, Jordan, Jason Shepard. Hello, gentlemen. How dare you call me by the wrong name, Matthew? (laughs) Are you kidding me? Are you there? Yes. I didn't know you were there. I I am here. (laughs) Spencer. (laughs) We are going to discuss that very thing. No kidding. We're going to discuss that very thing on the show today. Are you really? People called you by the wrong name? Somebody calling me by the wrong name and me (laughs) not knowing how in the world to address it. Oh, that is great. Was it on air? (laughs) Not on air, but off, off air, but just like multiple times where I'm like, oh, man. That is. I do. So you know what? Just call me that. Just okay. keep calling me. I'm gonna. No, I I like calling you Spencer, but I will. I'm not afraid to call you Jerem. <laughs> what What did this person call you, by the way? Yeah. What was the name? Did they call you? Maybe. Are you afraid it's gonna give it away. Yes. Okay. <laughs> you tell me how fair. Are you gonna talk I, about I, it? I, yes. You're gonna talk about it on the show. Uh, yeah, we are going to talk in about in a roundabout this on, way. Yes, on the show. <laughs> man, there are so many socially awkward situations. Well, I'm sorry, Steve. That's hard. <laughs> it's okay, Mark. <laughs> it sounds it sounds like it traumatized you. No, it doesn't traumatize me. I just never know what no, I to know. do. I know. What do you do? What do you do? Because if you say, it's "Oh, Matt. by the it's way, Matt. my name is," then yeah. they're like, "Uh, yeah. Uh, e, uh. yeah." Oh, I knew that. I was just thinking of Mark, the other uh. guy. No, I was just talking to a guy named <laughs> Craig. <laughs> Isn't that sad? It's so bad. That's one of those moments in life where, especially like if it's public or it's it's somebody important that, you know, you want them to know the name, you know. Yes. <laughs> oh, well. Then there's that. Then there's the, like, with some BYU fans, whenever I'm traveling on the road or whatever, like, I meet a lot of people and, like, have conversations with, with a lot of fantastic BYU fans, but... When people just come up to me like, hey, Spencer, <laughs> I'm always like, hey, do I, should I know you? Yeah, because no, totally. Because I feel really bad if I should know you and I don't. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, hey. What's up? And I'm hoping they'll say something like, you don't know me or we met one time <laughs> before, but sometimes they don't. And so I'm just like, mm-hmm. I, 
I have a trick. If I don't introduce them to my wife, she knows I have no clue who they are. <laughs> That's perfect. And then, then she you guys always, have already worked that out. That uh-huh. is great. Yeah. That's because we're older. And then she, she jumps right in and says, oh, now who are you guys? And then oh. I listen attentively. That is perfect. I remember faces. Like, I saw some people in Las Vegas, and I'm like, oh, I met that guy here last year. But yeah. I don't remember their names. Right, right. Well, and most of the people that you're meeting would probably be wearing BYU gear. Yeah, hey, do you hey. remember? Uh, oh, I hate that question. Do you remember me? Uh, sure. Yeah. No, I, I always say, just remind say me. No. Remind no. me. Yeah, as soon as you say no, immediately that person's oh, loser. Spencer. <laughs> he didn't even remember. We had a 15 minute conversation. He's so rude. See, this, okay, because here we are talking social skills. This is, this is great segue into what I need some help with. Okay. So they found out that women online who send uh, the message first to people like on an online dating site. If you send the woman sends the message first, then they're more likely to get responded to. And and but most men don't or most women don't tend to send messages first. Does that make sense? So if the female sends the message, the male will usually respond and then it'll start a conversation. And if it's vice versa, if the man sends the message first, many times they're not as appealing to the women. So the women don't respond back. Don't you think, though, I mean, we can all remember back to that that awkward, well, does she like me? Does she yeah. not like me? When they showed the interest first, oh, it takes the guessing yeah. out of it. You yeah. immediately, all right, fine, there we go. Yeah. I know. And then you're like, how about now? You you want to go on a date now? Let's go now. See, what you doing now? that stat that you just mentioned, that makes complete sense to I me. know, totally. Total sense. So me. here's what I need to know from you guys. I need some dating advice for my clients. Okay. Online dating advice. Okay. What what advice would you give p- people that are looking for love online? Like Ben here, my 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 board op Ben, he uh his finger was blistered and bleeding because he was on Tinder so much. Wow, swipe right. Yes, swipe, swipe right, swipe right, rights. swipe right, swipe right, left, 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 right. Okay. So any advice for these oh, online daters? Man. First of all, don't post pictures of somebody else. A great point. <laughs> great point. I'm writing these down. Don't call them by down. the wrong name and post pictures of someone else. <laughs> call, call, call them by the right name. Get the name right. Don't post pictures of someone else and say, "Hey, this is me." Mm-hmm. Don't really don't post a high school idea. picture if you are, you know, 40. Keep the picture <laughs> updated. Okay. Okay. These are great. Don't uh, be too eager. What What do you mean? Well, just you know, I think uh, I think. People can sniff out desperation. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. So, so don't be too eager. And the thing is, sending the first message to me is not desperate. No. It's just sending 17 messages before one person right. responds. Well, That's a little weird. And like, hey, Jer- just in case, I didn't know if you got the last one. I'll just, I just thought I'd send it. Yeah, I, yeah, my yeah. computer's been acting up. So I, I'm I sure you, you must again. be, your, your computer must be down, so I'm just going to send one more. <laughs> um, Jerem actually gave me some advice because uh, I emailed him, and he said, uh, he said he learned this from personal experience. Don't show up at their house if they don't know who you are and if they've never responded to you. Yeah, that's a great Which I think great is great advice. advice. Great advice. Yeah, that could go as like semi-stalkerish. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's yeah. when the cops get involved. Well, I think that's, that's what he was actually charged with, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, <laughs> knowing Jerem. <laughs> you know, I think that's where he is right now to hearing. <laughs> um, so that, that's great advice. Again, in a lot of times that's advice that you probably don't give on your show, but you give we on my show. We don't have the the opportunity and forum to do that. No, I know. That's why I want you 
on this show every day because I want to just squeeze all of the wisdom I can out of your brains. Here's the thing about I will say in all seriousness about online dating. Okay, because I have some friends and siblings. You that have, have people done that it. have done it, right? Yeah, you haven't done it, but others Just don't. The point is to find somebody that you are compatible with, right? Right. So why would you paint yourself as something that you are not? Yes, right. That's right. Why? They're going to find out, right? Exactly. <laughs> and if you want this to get to marriage, they will find out. Just don't don't paint yourself as something that you're not. That's right. Bait and switch, dude. It'll kill There's you. somebody out there that will like you or love you for exactly what you are. Man. There is, right? They're going to be disappointed if they find out that you're not at what you put yourself out there to be. You're so right. Yeah, you can't keep up an act. Why? Your no, entire life. You can't. Well. Eventually, well. Well. Yeah. Uh, eventually, your true colors will come out, so just be yourself from the beginning. See? You guys... This is why BYU Sports Nation, number one rated BYU Sports Nation show in history. <laughs> With Steve and Jason. Steve and Chris. Yeah, Steve and Chris. Steve and Jerry. This is great. <laughs> I love you, Mark. You're I love you guy. too, guys. Oh. Seriously, Steve, ever since we met, I've just been like, I want to be like you Steve and I grow up. Steve-O. <laughs> yeah. Hey, um, I got to let you go. You got to go to your show. But yeah, it's, yeah, it, you're, go. you're going to do it, and it's going to be good. It's going to be really good. tune in at the top of the hour, and they're going to talk about how poor Spencer was yes. called by the wrong name. And embracing the NIT. Oh, all there we go. weather fans, That's Matt. Right. No fair weather fans. No. All, all weather, weather fans. Even no weather Yes, weatherless fans. And there Jamal Williams is on the show, too. Oh, cool. Great. BYU running back. Yeah. He's always fun. Cool. Okay, great show, okay. guys. Right. Have fun, boys. Thank you. Thanks. Knock them dead. Good job. Good job. <sighs> that is hard when somebody <laughs> calls you by the wrong name. Huh, Bob? That's actually my right name. I've never been called that before. Really? Yeah. Do you hear that vibration from your microphone? Hey, listen to this. Uh, this is crazy. These emojis, you know, that everyone's using? A 12-year-old now is charged in Northern Virginia with threatening her school with social media message using emojis. Because in her message, she included a gun, a bomb, and a knife. And these emoji symbols that can be found on your, on your cell phone... It's now landed her in uh, some serious trouble. It also, by the way, her message contained words like killing and meet me in the library Tuesday. According to a search warrant, the girl acknowledged she posted the messages under another student's name. She's now charged with threatening the school and computer harassment. Her mother says the girl posted the message in response to being bullied in school. She's a good kid who's never been in trouble, but she's now being charged with... uh, Using emojis. This is getting crazy. Crazy, crazy, crazy. I should um, probably edit my messages. No, I, in fact, know. I totally wish you would. One other thing, just really quickly, uh, kind of in the bad boys, bad boys, bad boys and also bad mill, the bad mills department, uh, police say a fugitive from Tampa, Florida, believe it or not, Florida, who didn't want to be identified by his finger pit fingerprints during a traffic stop in Northeast Ohio chewed off his fingertips. He chewed his fingertips off. Kirk Kelly has been jailed in felony uh, on felony counts of evidence tampering, <laughs> eating his own fingertips. 
obstructing official business, and misdemeanor charges of falsification and resisting arrest. Ohio uh, police from Ohio say Kelly and several other people were put in the cruiser without handcuffs after their vehicle was stopped last weekend, and officers thought they smelled drugs. Police say Kelly gave false names as they tried to identify him, and then they, they, you know, found out that they actually found out who he was because of tattoos. He couldn't chew those off. Again, another reason maybe not to get body tattoos. That's just going to be a problem for you. Anyway, um, man, desperado. Uh, Finally, our hero story of the day. A man pays it forward by donating $10,000 on behalf of a woman who paid for his groceries. A couple of weeks before Christmas, uh, a Smyrna resident, Tracy Warshaw, 39, noticed the man behind her in line at uh, a supermarket and was shuffling around looking for his wallet. She told the ABC News, realizing uh, that he had forgotten it, she offered to pay his $7 grocery bill. It would have been more of a headache for him to go out to find his wallet in his car, she said. So, uh, you know, it was just kind of an instinctive thing that she did to say Merry Christmas, and then she walked away. Well, a few weeks into January, Warshaw found out that the man was looking for her when two representatives from the uh, Piedmont Foundation visited her at work to inform her that he would like to make a $10,000 donation in her name. So they ended up donating $10,000 to the Piedmont Cancer Institute in her name for that incredible uh, act of service. That is a heroic story, my friends. The man that she had helped happened to be Piedmont's Healthcare's Vice President of Philanthropy, Mendel Booknight. So Booknight made the donation. See, one good act, folks, ends up now benefiting many, many uh, in their treatment of cancer. That's how this world works, folks. You put in good, you get out good. And if you do it enough, uh, it'll all pay off in the end, and everyone will be elevated. Thanks for listening to the show. We'll be back again Monday. Join us then. If uh, Until then, look us up on TuneIn's iTunes, BYURadio.org. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll talk again Monday. Have a great weekend.